Welcome to episode 295 with my guest Mara Wilson. Today's episode is sponsored by Probimune. Did you know that research suggests that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? The people at Young Health do, which is why they've created Probimune, a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Right now, listeners get their first bottle of Probimune free when you sign up for automated delivery. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probimune free, and all you pay is $6.75 shipping and handling. So go to probimune.com, that's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the offer code uh, MENTAL at checkout to get your free bottle today. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, and everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Um, I am not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that has to come for something. i uh, not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable, and I think that's important when we're talking about uh, mental health. Um, <laughs> the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Fill out one of our anonymous surveys. Maybe we'll read it on the air. You can read um, other people's surveys, see uh, see what they wrote, and uh, you can support the show on the website. Want to also remind you guys about Podfest. Uh, LA Podfest is uh, quickly approaching. It's um, September 23 through 25, and uh, we're going to be recording there. We're going to be interviewing um, my friend Murray Valeriano, who was uh, had a father who was a preacher. Uh, Murray uh, also has never been to therapy, and uh, had well, you know what. I'll leave some of the bigger details uh, for the for the episode, but I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, a really interesting episode. Um, before I go any further, I want to also uh, mention in this interview with Mara, um, I forgot to ask her how Robin Williams' uh, death affected her, and um, fortunately, afterwards, I. Um, was looking at her blog, and she had written something on her blog about um, how Robin's death affected her. Because as many of you know, she was uh, Mara played the little girl in uh, the Mrs. Doubtfire movie. So um, at the end of the interview with Mara, I um, read that uh, blog piece that she wrote. Let's see. This is an email that I got from a guy uh, named Chad, and he writes... Um, quick and brief comment from the intro on episode number 293. Uh, He writes, there is no such thing as a sex and or porn addiction. It's insanely scary on how common this misconception is. Said person's sex and or porn, quote, addictions tend to have a deeper problem at its core. Uh, Note, I'm not a professional myself. I'm just passing down advice from a sex-positive podcast I listen to primarily for their humor. The cast members whom are well aware of negative aspects of sex uh, and or porn, but almost always come to a realization that in every, quote, addiction case, there was a deeper underlying problem. In regards to this topic, here's a basic paraphrased summary of the cast's advice over the years. You may have a biological need 
that stronger than others, which means you are addicted to the act of coming, confusing sex slash porn as the addiction, which may stem from excess anxiety or stress and coming, whether with porn or with a partner or partners, is your body's way of coping. Uh, there are numerous, and then he back to speaking for himself, there are numerous other medical and psychological diagnoses that can contribute to these types of addictions. Even though this topic can be embarrassing to talk about, I suggest consulting a doctor or psychiatrist pending on a case-by-case basis. Uh, and I wrote, um, I respectfully disagree with some of your points, uh, speaking as someone who is in recovery for multiple addictions. What is insanely scary to me is people who haven't lived in experience telling those who have that they don't know what they're experiencing. Yeah, semantically, the physical addiction in sex or love addiction is to the chemicals released in the brain by whatever the process is that is compulsive to the person. Porn, prostitutes, emotionally unavailable partners, um, you know, whatever. So technically... It's a chemical addiction, and the acts are merely the vehicles for the chemical delivery. Um, I, I, so in, in that sense, yeah, it's an addiction to those chemicals, but they need a way to, to, to be released uh, for, for the addict to get their fix. Uh, I don't think porn is necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's something that I am not able to watch in moderation. Uh, but for someone whose way of um, releasing uh, those chemicals, it if that is their their thing and it is an addiction, well, that addict can never have a moderate relationship in the long run with it. That's the very nature of addiction. Um, they can, however, have a healthy relationship to sex. Uh, now, if, if, if you were an addict um, who has experienced addictive um, sex, or, you know, compulsive masturbating or looking at pornography or whatever, um, you would know that the chemistry of addictive sex feels vastly, vastly different than non-addictive sex. Yeah, some of the chemicals are the same, but unlike non-addictive sex, there is a hyper-alert, can't-get-enough, adrenalized quality to addictive sex that any sex or love addict in recovery will tell you. An untreated addict will probably not realize this difference as they have not dealt with the wounds that led to the unhealthy behaviors, so they think all sex feels like that. Once they've healed and refrained from the addictive behaviors, a new relationship to sex and the release of the chemicals emerges in a way that is non-addictive. The root of the addiction is based in trauma and abandonment, and sex was merely the vehicle that the person learned to soothe. But it is an addiction. They are not mutually exclusive. Um, yeah, there is a trauma underneath there, but that doesn't mean it's it didn't turn into an addiction. Um, I would totally agree with your points uh, around the term love addiction, because uh, love has nothing to do with love, quote-unquote love addiction. Um it's that that's just intensity it's not real love or intimacy so i don't believe there is such a thing as being addicted to actual love but there is an addiction to choosing emotionally unavailable people as a way of replaying childhood wounds and convincing oneself that it is love because it feels intense but that is not love 
just because uh, there's a deeper problem at the core, again, doesn't mean that it isn't an addiction. Um, now, while those in, of us in recovery have dealt with the trauma and the abandonment, the addiction never completely disappears. Rather, it goes into a state of manageable remission. Um, so I think it's dangerous for people who do not experience addiction to say that there isn't an addiction. You know, someone who otherwise might seek help may not because of that and then stay stuck in a lifetime of acting out and destroying their life. And if you've ever met someone who has destroyed their life with an addiction to pornography or prostitutes or chasing unavailable people, running away from intimacy, I think you might feel differently because I have personally known people driven to suicide because they cannot stop their addiction. And it angers me when someone who has never been on that brink dismisses their experience. Now, I know you're not coming from a place of malice, but this belief has a widespread result that is just as damaging. And I don't really give a fuck what a scientist has to say, because the brain is too complex to quantify anything but chemistry, not the complex reasons behind their release. Sorry about that, but that got me fucking worked up. Um, I'm just going to read two, three surveys, and then we'll get to the, the interview with uh, Mara. I lied for four quick uh, struggle in a sentence surveys. Talia writes about her ADD. I went upstairs to get a pair of socks so I could mow the lawn. I came back downstairs two hours later and still didn't have the socks. That's awesome. Uh, Duder writes about his depression. Astounding indifference at milestone events in my life. Oh, my God. How fucking true is that? How true is that? I remember being at my most depressed and there was a birthday party and I just thought, nobody here has any idea that I want to die. Oh my God, I'd not been eating and so I had lost a bunch of weight. And this is like in, I don't know, 1999. And they're like, man, you look great. And I just remember thinking, you have no fucking idea. Um, amiable goat, uh, gives us a snapshot from her life. She writes, having social anxiety means sitting in my car trying to sing along to the radio with my mouth closed like a ventriloquist because it would be embarrassing if the other people in their cars could see me singing. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And this one is from uh, Sometimes a Cigar is Just a Penis. And he writes um, about his anorexia. The clean and fresh feeling after a stimulant-induced bowel movement is better than Christmas about experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias. He writes, I'm a successful 20-something working in finance, but only say my ethnicity under my breath because Mexican is a four-letter word here in the States. And about his depression, he writes, hating Mondays because you need to answer, what did you do this weekend? And apparently, it's inappropriate to say, cried, masturbated, and ate ice cream. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. 
you know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Mara Wilson, who I'm very excited to have as a as a guest. We've been trying to do this for a while. But yeah, we have, but I've been mostly in New York. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so glad I uh, we found a window for you to, to, to come record. You're uh, an author. You're a playwright. You're a, a former actor. Yeah. You are, I would call you an activist, too, for mental health, how open you are about... I definitely am. I definitely am. It's something that I feel very strongly about. Yeah. And it's something that I, I feel like... I kind of have an obligation to talk about having dealt with it myself. You know, I just want other people to feel better. Yeah. It, it really helps when uh, people uh, with the kind of visibility that, yeah. that you have uh, speak so, so honestly about it. Some, some of you uh, will probably uh, know Mara from her role as the, the little girl in Matilda. She yeah. was Matilda and the little girl in Mrs. Doubtfire. Those are probably the two film roles that you were yeah, most... What, I would what say, are some of the other ones? I would say Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda, definitely. Uh, every now and then somebody will remember me from Miracle on 34th Street, mm -hmm. which was a remake of the 1940s movie and at the time wasn't highly regarded, but the thing is when you're in a Christmas movie... Uh, they need to put Christmas movies on around Christmas time. So they just kind of grab anything they can, I guess. And I mean, like I had fun and I think there were some great moment moments in that movie. And I really loved the people that I worked with on it. But like, like I'm going to say if you are ever an actor and you get offered a part in a Christmas movie, take it, take it because that is guaranteed royalties right there. Oh, I never thought about yeah, that. Yeah, it is because every year, you know, and and I mean like, you know, that like that one channel has a Christmas story, but you know, what do the other rest of them have, you know? And they can't all have the original Miracle on 34th Street. They can't all have, I don't know, stories about Jesus or whatever. So, what do they have? They have things like the remake of Miracle yeah. on 34th Street. I think that would be a great uh, name for a Christmas movie, stories about Jesus or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Jewish. What can I say? <laughs> um, I remember, I'm just going to uh, yeah. have a fan moment, but we I used to do a TV show when we uh, showed movies and, yeah. and we cooked food and talked about it. And we showed oh, yeah, Matilda. Yeah, yeah. And I remember watching it and saying i believe i said it on camera is that little girl expresses more of her soul than most adult actors oh wow that, that, <laughs> that i know there was um a sadness a pain in, yeah and that little kid was that something that you were tapping into personally or i think was it was i mean i was an intense little kid i i was um I was intense, but I was an extrovert. I, I loved to talk to anyone. I loved to perform. But there was definitely, I'd been dealing with anxiety from uh, from a very young age. And OCD and depression. And OCD and depression. And it had been, and OCD was really my main problem. Um, and But I would have panic attacks. and uh, Even that and young? My mother, yeah, you know, my brother actually told me something. Um, he told me this a few months ago. He said that, he remembers when me being like four or five and we would go up to this lake in Minnesota that was just gorgeous and uh, we'd go to the little stores nearby 
And uh, a lot of like the local Native American tribes would sell things at the stores because, you know, sell it you know, stuff to tourists, make some Mm -hmm. money. And I got a cup of like, I think Peruvian, uh, a couple of like Peruvian worry dolls. You're supposed to tell your worries to them. Mm -hmm. And, and like, that'll, they'll go away. And I took this really seriously. And my brother says he walked in on me in a room once and I was crying and like shaking and rocking back and forth and like and holding them. And he said, what's wrong? And I looked at him. I just said, it's just my worries. Wow. And he said he he didn't really know what to do, you know. He was he was barely a teenager. There wasn't really anything he could do. And my mom for her own reasons didn't want to deal with any mental health problems because she'd grown up in a family with so many that I think it was sort of like, okay, shut up and get over it, you know, mm. was was kind of the thing. But uh and your yeah. mom your mom passed away when you were My mom passed away when I was 8. Uh sh- between the filming of Matilda and when it actually came out. And it was really hard for me. I think that I I knew, like, that's probably what you see in there. You see the sadness of somebody who's dealing with that. But on the surface, I felt fine. I felt like my mom's cancer was like my grandfather's diabetes. You know, something uncomfortable that you just kind of had to live with. But, uh, but I didn't know how sick she was. And a few, like, a, a few months after Matilda stopped filming... We, we wrapped on Matilda, I started getting really bad panic attacks. And uh, and they were always, they were never about my mother. They were always about other things. They were always like, oh I my God, worried. where are my toys? Yeah, totally. It was, <laughs> I was worried my hamster would get out of her cage uh, because one of my friends uh, uh, played with her and forgot to put her away. And we couldn't find her. And I had a complete meltdown and I was screaming and crying and I, and, you know, and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat for a week. And then, you know, but it was it was just any kind of loss, you know, I was I was just I would cry about like the dumbest things. And it was it was it was really hard. And uh, and when Matilda came out, it was, you know, two months after two, three months after my mother had died. And I can't remember anything of that summer. Like, I just remember being just feeling so lost and in a haze, you know? And I should have been really happy because something amazing and, you know, I had this amazing success, but I I can't really remember that. And I was filming that summer too, and I know that I was filming a movie, and I mean, it wasn't the greatest movie to begin with, but I know that I was a terror on that set. I know that I was a terror because I was just going through so much shit. I was just lost, and I'd say for like two or three years, I was just really lost. And then, uh, or actually, I'd say probably four years. Four years was when I was lost. And then, and they would send me, the thing is also that they would send me to grief counselors, but I didn't know how to talk about my grief yet. And also, I was having such bad OCD and anxiety, and the grief counselors never seemed to want to address that. They didn't really seem to to understand that that was like a, a symptom of, of, you know, and it was exacerbated by the loss and that I had a serious problem with it. You know, like I... I I knew and I knew at that age that there was something wrong with me. Like there are people who worry that there was something wrong with them. I knew that there was something wrong and I just I desperately wanted help. But for a long time I didn't get it and I I can't really blame, you know, anybody for that. I can't blame my father for that because he had five children and a job that required him to get up at 4 in the morning and my career to manage. So wow. You know, yeah, exactly. So how was uh, you know, how how you know how was he also going to deal with the fact that I was losing my mind you know 
And also, I think parents don't want to accept sometimes that their kids are sick. You know, my dad would do really nice things for us when I was having panic attacks. He would say, um, he would say, you know, like, why don't we, why don't we go to the beach? Why don't we go to the mountains? And it would be nice. It would be a nice distraction. But then I would get home and I would have panic attacks again. Yeah. You know? Do you think uh, it would have helped if he had said, what are you feeling? What are you, what are you worrying about? What's going on inside you? Would that, would that have helped? He did. And he did do that a little bit. But I think that he kind of, he, he, his fears were like, I mean, I guess he could be an anxious person, but his fears were always rational. And mine were clearly irrational. So he would tell me just to reason them out, you know, because... I tried to do that with my wife for years. Yeah. And then I finally realized she just wants me to listen. Yeah, totally. She doesn't want me to fix her. That's And that's definitely a problem that I have to this day where I like to be in control. And I mean, I do that with like family members and friends all the time. They're like, I'm having a hard day. And I'm like, well, you should do this. And they're like, no, don't don't tell me. Just listen. And I'm like, well, I'm not a journal. I'm not a therapist. I want to give help. Do you think the the panic attacks, the anxiety and all that stuff, do you think it's genetic or do you think something environmentally in your upbringing triggered it? I think it's genetic. I definitely think it's genetic because if you look at my family, I mean, my my grandfather was bipolar, um, is severely bipolar, so so much so that he he, you know, would have delusions when he was manic. And um and he was he was this amazing jazz musician and this amazing speaker and uh this this like he'd give public speeches, he taught people how to do PR, he was you know, he had this like amazing, charming, grandiose personality, but you know, he also would go into have these intense, you know, swings. And that was which side of the family? That was my mother's side. Mm-hmm. My father's side doesn't have as many problems. I, well, I mean, they, they definitely have their own problems, but it's not as, I guess it's not as like visible and apparent as, as that. Would you, would you call um, your, your late mom, would you have called her, um, classified her as cold or distant? Because or, in one of your blogs, you described, I can't remember what it was, but your mom's reaction. Oh, it was you wanting to stay home from school. Yeah. And it it sounded like your mom didn't really want to know why, the reasons why. I can't, I can't remember the exact, but it, it just sounded like you were trying to reach out emotionally and yeah. she was more interested in just putting a vintage movie on for you. Oh, well, yeah, that was, that was uh, my mom was strict. She was definitely strict and she was definitely tough kind of a suck it up and she could yeah she could be her thing was you need to be strong but she would actually like break down and listen to me or not break down but she would she would you know come down and listen to me and we had this kind of intimacy you know with her and especially since I traveled with her so much where I would like I would do anything and she would be like stop doing that or why are you doing that or what's up you know, like I remember looking at my class photo and I bit my lip and she said, oh, which one of these boys do you like? You know, and I was like, how the how the hell did you know? She just knew she knew everything. And uh, and she would answer any question and she would she would, you know, any question to ask. I'd ask her, you know, mom, where did language come from? And we talked about like the different ways we talked about the religious perspective, the evolutionary perspective, wow. you know, and uh, she, so she always kind of, let she, me tell a story. Education was her thing. I was going to say, so uh, she she could deeply connect through her intellect. Oh, yeah. That was definitely how she connected to the world. 
And she was very passionate, but she'd had this chaotic upbringing, you know, that was so hard. And so for us, it was sort of like, you have to be tough. You have to be tough and you and and you can't be crazy. You know, you have to fight the crazy in it, us. And it was definitely she would say to me, you're you know, you're acting crazy right now. And I think it was because she was really afraid. She'd seen, you know, what her parents had gone through and and what other members of the family had had caused. And so I think that she knew that it was a hard life and she was and she felt at a loss. And she, it sounds like she viewed it as a matter of will. I think that, yeah, she might have. She might have. And it's, it's at least uh, in covering it up. Definitely in covering it up. And I think she was also, it was also kind of her in panic mode because she knew that I was the center of attention and everything. And she knew what happened to people who were, you know, who had public breakdowns. So it was very much the like, you need to stop this right now. You need to get this together. And I think maybe that had worked for her kind of, although, I mean, then she would like, you know, she would, she would be fine with that. She would, she would, you know, she would like hide her frustration or anger and then, uh, you know, and then, like, yell at a sales lady at Bullock's who was rude to her, you know, and like, and have that That's kind the way of to thing do it. too. I gotta yeah. say, that Bullock's is for for taking shit out on people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and and she would do that, and um, but but strength and strength and smarts, those were really what it was. But she was also, I mean, she wasn't a cold person at all. Cold okay. is the she was strict, but cold is the absolute opposite of her. She she was hot. She was passionate. I see. She she ran hot and she uh used that also to do a lot of like she would do so much uh so much charity work and I mean, I remember us going to uh like the Burbank Temporary Aid Center to help one day or like to donate some stuff and she saw like a young mother with her child there and just like waiting outside and they couldn't go in there because it was closed. And my mom said, okay, you're coming with us. And, uh, her mom like put uh, her daughter in the backseat, you know, the mom in the front. And I like played with the daughter a little bit. She was a little older than me. And then, uh, and my mom took her back to our house and we, we figured out a place for her to stay places for her to go places where she could get things. My mom spent the whole day, wow. you know, taking care of this, of this woman that she'd never met before. And I remember things like that, like us us uh, being on the street in San Francisco or Chicago and people would be panhandling and we walked past a woman with a baby and my mom said, I have to go back because I can't I can't walk by a woman with a baby. You know, it was it was things like that. And it was never like a grand pronouncement. It was never mm -hmm. like, look how great I am. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of like, this is a matter of course. This is what yeah. you are supposed to do. Yeah. And your parents were against you uh, getting into acting, which... Um, they were uh, reluctant. Reluctant. I would say. But I think that's that's an important thing to mention because, yeah. you know, you have somebody who Stage was a child parents. star yeah. on and the first thought is, oh, they were pushing to show totally. business. Of course, totally. they have emotional issues. But I, I, when I read in your blog yeah. uh, that you said that, I thought that was an important they thing were to very, mention. Yeah, they were very reluctant to do it. Um, well, I think, the, actually, I didn't know this, but the first time that I was ever on camera, I didn't know this until I was probably about 21, was that we were in a toothpaste commercial. The toothpaste uh, people, and I think it was probably something my grandfather might have known somebody because he did a lot of PR work. Uh, the toothpaste commercial wanted to fe feature real families. Uh, and my dad sent me the video, and there are two families on the tape. 
And the first family is this like perfect blonde Californian family that plays their guitar together <laughs> and spends times ca- spends all their time like camping and going to the park oh, I and like kill them. yeah I and just kill like them. just like this perfect and they're all like beautiful in the same way and they're all harmonizing and then it goes to the next commercial which opens with my mom saying you know sometimes I feel like a drill sergeant <laughs> and yelling at one of my brothers for hitting another one of my brothers. And I'm just like, oh, great. We're that family. That's who we are. We're the contrast. And I'm, I'm in the video. I'm a baby on my mom's hip. And, uh, you know, she had four children. And did that air? It did air. Yeah. Oh my God. She had four children, you know, under the age of, of 10. And so it was just, it was her. And then later my sister was born. So it's her yelling and then like them brushing their teeth. And that was the only acting that my brothers did. I mean, they were actually in the background scenes of, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and things like that, but okay. they weren't, uh, they never wanted to act. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, perfect families, I just have to share this story <laughs> with you very briefly. Um, when I was five years sober, I was trying to find people to go camping with me and yeah. nobody could go because the only place I could get a spot at this great site was yeah. to go during the week. So I'm like, you know what? I'm sober. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to be by myself and it's going to be serene. Yeah. And it was great for like 12 hours. And then that family camps <laughs> next to me and it's everything I never experienced. Yes. And I'm sitting there and they and the son with muscles and handsome <laughs> catches the biggest fish that's ever been caught of at the course. campsite and they're cooking it up and I've got a single hot dog on my little camp thing and at one point I look away and I turn back and my hot dog is rolled into the dirt. Oh no! <laughs> I just packed up all my shit and left. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, anyway. Yeah, but, it's just it's just that family and and then our family and I'm like, great, we're we're the other ones. So uh so I think it was because of that, and after that, uh, my oldest brother started doing a little bit of acting. Uh, he doesn't do it anymore. And he had the same kind of, like... Like, my mom definitely inherited her grand... Like, her father's uh, tendency to be... Or not tendency, but, like, but skill, I would say, for, like, public speaking and, you know, this performative energy. And uh, And my oldest brother had a little bit of that, too. And he was a cute kid, and he was smart, and he was a quick study. So they started sending him out on auditions... Mm-hmm. And uh, we would we would tease him about, you know, his lines. And he was in like a Sizzler commercial and he was in that movie Turner and Hooch mm-hmm. with uh, Tom Hanks and a dog. And, you I know, remember that movie. yeah. And he had a he's like a bratty little kid at the beginning. And and, uh, you know, and he would go on auditions with like Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonathan Brandis and Will Wheaton and all of them. And, uh, you know, all the, the kids of that generation. And uh, and he uh he he would do that and then eventually i think he just was like yeah i'm kind of tired of this i'm burned out but i you know the one who was always throwing herself in front of the camcorder was like that looks like fun i want to try my mom said no you don't and they had to they set up a mock audition for me to explain to me how rejection worked but it just kind of bounced off me i was just like all right that's fine i can just go on another one and I never knew about any of the money that I made. I It was all put into a fund for college. And uh, my parents never touched it. And I never touched it. And I never requested to touch wow, it. Wow, that is rare. Yeah. That is rare. It is very rare. We Well, that but that was the thing. And, you know, some people even say, like, like when I, I, I describe, like, yeah, I, I shared... I shared a bedroom with my little sister until I was 14. And we moved because all my brothers had moved out of the house um and and now there was like finally room for us all uh yeah i shared a room with with uh 
I shared a room with with her until I was 14 and we would shop for premier dresses at like Forever 21 and Mervyn's, you know, so they were $20 dresses and not, you know, $200 dresses. And and that was just the way that it was. We lived this life. I went to public school for most of my life. I, you know, it was, was, it it was hard, very much. Was it hard being uh, Matilda or was it a bonus? Uh... It was hard. I would say it was hard. I would say that it was really frustrating for me because, I, I mean, I was so excited to be able to play her, but kids at school would, you know, they would tease me with it. They would, they would, you know, a lot of people kind of imagine, and I remember Michelle Trachtenberg, who was my friend who was in Harriet the Spy and, and, uh, and stuff. Like, I remember her actually, we were friends for a while and then she, people were always saying like, oh, she's really mean. And I was like, no, she's not. She's a really nice person. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, she's in movies, so she must be mean. You know? And I think people thought that, too. People would be like, you think you're so great because you're in movies. And I was like, dude, I have the lowest self-esteem of anybody here. Like, I'm, I am the most insecure. What are you even talking about? And, and kids are so afraid of being vulnerable in a public setting totally. with other kids. Yeah. So their way of saying... Yeah. You know, it's like how they do when you have a crush on somebody and you're a kid, you punch him, you make fun yeah. of him. Yeah, you do. totally. And I'm sure totally. a lot of them wanted to say, oh, my God, I, you know, I love that movie and, yeah. and I'm so jealous. Well, I think that it's I think that there's a couple things there. I think that there's um, that they were were jealous of me, I think. And I actually I, I spent a lot of time reading the dictionary when I was in middle school because I was uh depressed and uh and i found out there's like a difference between jealous and envious like envious means that uh you want what they have and jealous means and i might actually be getting confused jealous means you don't understand why it was them and not you oh you know and i think that that was definitely the feeling that they had of me like they didn't nobody wanted to be me it was jealous nobody wanted to be me because they would look at me and they were like, you're just this nerdy girl. You know, your mom died. You like, you're not that cute anymore. You're not that, you know, you're not that glamorous. Uh, like, why isn't it me? Why don't I have your life? I'm prettier than you. I'm a better actor than you, you know, and sometimes they were. And it was so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of why doesn't this, you know, why, why isn't, why isn't it like this? Why do I not have that? Especially, you know, growing up in Burbank where there were a lot of child actors. You know, kids would just come out from pilot season every year. Like if somebody moves, if somebody moves from, you know, Michigan or Minnesota to uh, California in January, you know what they're there for. They're there for pilot season. Yeah. So, and, and I think that's also why my parents let me act because it didn't seem like that big of a deal. You know, like everybody knew somebody whose child acted and, you know, one out of, you know, 500 got, like, something recognizable. And I don't think we knew anybody who was as successful as I was. Uh, you know, I, at least not when we were in the... Before we were, like, fully in the industry. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think that's... And I think that's probably why cause they were like, okay, well, let, let's let Mara do this because there's no way that she's actually going to get anything. <laughs> <laughs> she might get a few commercials, but she'll never actually, you know... Um, so talk about emotionally what was going on inside you. If you could, if you could get in a time machine and go back and talk to young Mara, mm -hmm. what would you say to her? Oh, um, 
I think I would tell her to not hate herself, to not, to not hate herself for it and to not fight the anxiety so much because that's herself, what she did. To not, hate herself for being anxious and depressed. Yeah. She, okay. yeah. Don't, don't do that. Don't beat yourself up for it. It's even worse. I think I would say be more adamant about wanting to get treatment for it. And when you do get treatment for it, don't just go there and talk about your feelings every day. You know, this isn't confession. You do need to actually work to, you know, to take these steps. Can you be specific about what those steps would look like? I think that like, I think that, I mean, I did go on medication and I'm actually still on medication and, uh, and I'm fine with that. I'm on Zoloft. Okay. Um, and I'm, and the thing is every few, every like year, like I'd say like every year or so I'm like, you know, maybe I should lower my dose of Zoloft. I'll be fine. And then I start to get the really annoying recurrent thoughts again, and I start to worry again. And and I'm just like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. It's, it's. Uh, Why do we do that? I, because we all, we we all, all do, do that. that. Because I think that we we are trained to see this as this crutch, and I think it's also a very like. I think it's it's sort of I think it's also a very American thing of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that it's also uh I think that it's also like I don't know. And and it's funny because Americans use the most prescription drugs but we're also like the most against them. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's it's we have this like love-hate relationship with it and we hate that we're dependent upon it. I also think especially growing up in LA, people were like Oh my god, you're on medication and you're a teenager. There's something seriously wrong with you. Why don't you just do yoga? Which, like, I mean, I also did do yoga, and, you know, and that, like, relaxed me, but it didn't make me, you know, not an anxious mess all the time. And that's something that's still, like, uh, I, I get so frustrated thinking about it. Um, so what what are some of the other steps you... you I think lo- that it, there was definitely... Um, you need to focus on, on, you know, I think it's it's kind of... I mean, like, I think CBT is really limiting, but I think that you should... And for, those, for those that don't know, it's cognitive, cognitive be- behavioral therapy. therapy. Yeah. I think that you need to uh, take steps and, and change the behaviors that are making you, you know, miserable, which is something that I've done with my current therapist. I've been with her for a while. And it's really just about kind of changing the way that you look at your thoughts, I think. And can you, um, can you give me specific examples of how you change your behavior, how you look at at your thoughts. I think it's well, I think it's certain things like um like yeah, for an for an example would be um um going to all or nothing, which is something that I've always done. Uh, very all or nothing thinking. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm the exact same way. Maybe I just kind of was trained to see life as like it's one extreme or it's the next, you know, because that was what was around me. Um and so I I think that I would do but yeah, you can't be like everybody loves me, everybody hates me. And I mean, that's also a consequence of being in Hollywood. People do tend to, you know, kind of go one way or the other on you. You know, you also can't think this is going to be forever. You know, you can't, you have to remind yourself that this is going to pass. You know, if it's bad, it's going to pass. If it's good, even if it's good, it's going to pass. Unfortunately, you need to remind yourself that. And, and, uh, there's also, um, I think it's, it's just sort of the way that you talk to yourself, you know, if you talk to yourself saying, yeah, well, I'm the worst anyway, who cares about me? I'm, I'm ugly and therefore, you know, unworthy being loved. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm stupid. I'm this, I'm that, you know, you're not going to, 
be able to get better. You're not going to be able to do anything. What would you say, though, to the person that can't get there, that intellectually knows that's not a healthy thing to do, Yeah, but can't, doesn't know how to get out of that? I think they do need to get help from somebody else because, I mean, I've had this problem with friends before where they'll be really depressed and, you know, you, you try to talk to them and you say, this is the way it is. But, I mean, there was for, for a while for me that I couldn't get out of that space either, you know. And that's why I needed to go on medication so I could get into this place where I could actually, I could actually, you know, learn how to talk to myself in a positive way. It's, you know? it's so hard knowing sometimes is this a is this a chemical thing yeah. is this a spiritual thing is yeah. this an emotional thing and it's like a big jumbled bowl of spaghetti where you can't really see where one noodle ends and the other one yeah, begins totally. so for me i think it's hitting it on every front that you can yes do yoga yes yeah find definitely. some kind of uh, spiritual practice not necessarily a religion but yeah, something but something some kind of code some kind of you know which is why I spend a lot of time with my family and I bake and I do charity work and I, you know, try to do activism and things like that because that speaks to who I am, you know, on a spiritual level, even though I don't actually believe that there is a God, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I mean, I guess there might be, but there's something, you know, there is a peace that is accessible in the universe. I find yeah, yeah, when, totally. when I practice a principled yeah. life and consider others and especially if I do something that is inconvenient, that yeah. is nice for somebody else. And especially things totally. where I'm not expecting anything in, in return. Well, there's one thing, like, I'm, I'm, and, and probably anybody who reads my Twitter knows this, I'm a very angry person. Because anger for a long time was my defense mechanism. And people don't really know how to deal with an angry girl. <laughs> they, um, actually, the shirt that I'm wearing today says that girl thinks she's the queen of the neighborhood. And it's, uh from a song by Bikini Kill, which is Riot Girl, all angry girl music. And that's like stuff that I listen to all the time, that and Slater Kinney and like... Is that Kathleen Hanna? Kathleen Hanna, yeah. yeah. Have and you like, seen the documentary, Pump Yes, Rock I have, Singer? I have. So good God, so would good. I love so to get good. her on the podcast. I know, she's amazing. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, and I remember hearing it first in like my brother's friend's car when I was like 11 and being like, what is this? Is that a girl singing? Because I was so excited that there were like other girls out there that were angry. And, and so I think that that's something I've sort of parlayed into like activism and, and such. But I think that, I think that for a long time I was very, very angry and it was, it was, uh, it was, it was hard for me and I really needed to, to challenge that. But I think that also I tend to like lash out when I feel, when I feel frustrated. And also I've, I've noticed this like, Sometimes when people are too nice to me, I feel like, okay, they must want something from me. Because, you know, growing up in Hollywood, that's that's what people would do. So I I distrust them, even when they're, like, friends. And that's why, like, unless it's, like, a work situation or I know the person, like, really well and present company, you know, excluded, of course, I don't feel comfortable one-on-one with somebody. Because yeah. I feel like they must want something from me. It makes dating a pain in the ass, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel really nervous. Like the last time I went on a date, I got up and I went to the bathroom and I cried in the bathroom and I came back and pretended like everything was okay. Why, why did you cry? Because I was just so nervous. Because I feel like dating is getting to know somebody. I think that being in a relationship with someone is finding someone who speaks your language. Absolutely. And, or at least wants to understand your language. 
And this guy, he was a, a really good guy, but I just didn't feel like he spoke it. And I also don't like disappointing people. So I knew that I was going to have to disappoint him. I knew that it wasn't working with him. And from there, I tend to escalate the, okay, well, what if nobody is? <laughs> you know? Yeah. What if nobody is, right? What if well this is the... Done. Yeah. And also the like, yeah. And, and if this person isn't for me, then who is? It, it makes me... It just made me really anxious. And eventually, at the end of it, I said to him, look... You're a really nice guy, and I feel like you are somebody that I'd like want to see movies and do karaoke with, but I don't think we should date. And uh, and he took that well, which was which was nice. <laughs> yeah. But it was still, you know, and he probably would feel terrible if he knew how anxious I was. But he's an anxious person too, so he probably wouldn't really, you know. He, I hope he would understand that it wasn't because of him; it was just because of, you know. Yeah. It, there's something. Yeah, you need to have that intimacy there. And and it's uh, yeah, dating terrifies me. What are the greatest hits of negative self-talk? Oh, God. OK, let's see. Um, <laughs> well, when I was younger, I'm not religious now, but I was very superstitious and and kind of maybe even like sanctimonious when I was young. Um, and it was, uh, you know, very, very like very overly scrupulous. Uh, and I used to think uh even God thinks you're a lost cause. Really? In God's eyes, you're crazy. There's no such thing as obsessive compulsive disorder. In God's eyes, you're just crazy. Yeah. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, that was a heavy one, and that was a thought I had when I was like, you know, 12. <laughs> 11, 12, I would say. Yeah, that was definitely, that was a big one. I, I thought about life and death. Even before my mother died, I thought about life and death a lot, and then... She she died and I became like a full on existentialist. <laughs> um, there was there was definitely that. There was also um, there was just you're never going to get better. There was uh, there was if any of your friends or family knew anything about how crazy you are, they would never want to talk to you again. There was that's such an insidious one. It really is because then. Y- it's like a shield that doesn't allow you to take in love because you think the other person is just dumb or yeah. unaware. Yeah, and it's also, and I mean, I feel like like when I told, you know, when my brothers found out that I had OCD, they were like, in this family, that's all you have? You know, we have, <laughs> we have like every genetic disorder and mental disorder in our, in our family. You know, this is, you know, you, you know, be glad you're not like suffering with schizophrenia right now because that's a, that's a hard life. That you is know? a tough one. It really is. But it's, people it's do live, uh, um, some people yeah, do they live do. full lives. I had, uh, Dr. Ellen Sachs. I was on. just going to say Ellen Sachs. I love her. Yeah. I love her. Her book is amazing and it should be it's, read by everyone. And she was a great guest. The Center Cannot Hold. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and she kind of reminded me of a lot of my, um, like, Jewish relatives who've dealt with a lot and kind of, you know, are are super, super intelligent. What do Jews have to worry about? <laughs> the world has treated them fantastically through the ages. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's also, you know, there's there's epigenetics, which is, you know, which is... I, I've heard about before, and also, like, I've been learning more. I, I think they actually talked about it on that show, Transparent. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, my family on both sides, 
it was, you know, they were escaping pogroms. They were, you know, they were going to the roof every day to look at the flag to see what country they were in that day. You know, they were. And then I, on the I see other that. Side, as, I see that as exercise. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then and then on the other side, we were we were just like dirt poor Irish, you know, just just the scullery maids, scullery maids. And then on the Jewish side, I think a lot of people think of Jews and they think of like well off, you know, well to do, wealthy Jews. Uh that that was not us. We were not. We were we were like we were kind of long days journey into night on that side too, except like I guess with lithium instead of alcohol. And <laughs> uh <laughs> and and it was yeah, it was it was all just like yeah, both sides of my family, like both both I mean, my dad's family is mostly okay. But my my mom's side I mean they're not if you go back far enough, but my mom's side you know, it's just kind of these these sad people. Yeah, trauma trauma ripples through generations. It really does. It really does, and I think that it's kind of like I've sort of seen it as my job to like to sort of carry it forward and and to to be aware of these things. You know, like our mom was very strict, and uh, you know, am like I see like my brothers raising their kids now, and they can be strict parents, but. They take the best of our of like what our mom did, <laughs> you know, and not the the other parts like, you know, like like blowing up at people in public and things like that. You know, they they try to they try to do that and they try to do you kind of I think you kind of have to I don't know. I don't want to say succeed where your parents failed because I think that's, you know, I think that my parents were were good parents, but I think that uh for most people that have had things problems like that, you just kind of have to carry it forward mm-hmm. and continue to improve yourself. But then I'm a very much like I'm I don't know if it's because I'm a perfectionist or what, but I'm very much a like self-improvement person. Maybe it comes from growing up in Los Angeles. What can I say? But I'm very much about like you should be the best you can be. You should mm-hmm. be self-actualized. You should be uh, good to yourself. You should be good to other people. You should take care of people. And I also really believe, and I remember my dad telling me this when I was young, he said, you know, if you're not, and, and and not like if I was feeling depressed, but if you're just like feeling down one day and grumpy, but you smile and you do something nice for somebody, you'll feel better. And and he was right. And there are some times where I'm like cranky about really stupid things and I get angry about like the little things that I can't control and I actually just noticed this the other day. I was just like, I was annoyed with something. I've been staying with one of my friends and, uh, and she's just wonderful. And so I didn't want to like take anything out on her, or any of the stupid little anxieties that I had. But I just like turned to her and I was like, Hey, I love you. You're a great friend. And she was like, Oh, thank you very much. And I immediately felt better. <laughs> you know, I immediately was like, Oh, right. I'm reminding right. myself of this. I think, I think that's a great thing for anger, but. I think when somebody's in depression, no, I depression th- is definitely. I mean, it's different. Yeah, depression is definitely. And Telling I think, someone to smile when they're oh, depressed. No, is, that is fuck you if you say that. It's it's uh, it definitely it definitely is. And I think my dad also. My dad, you know, knew the difference when I was depressed and when I was like just being an angsty teenager, which I was. I have had depression for a while, but I I think that anxiety was usually much more of my thing, and. Depression is scary to me, and I think depression actually causes more anxiety for me because I kind of don't know. It's it's hard to deal with depression. It's, it's a parasite. A it's this like it's this perpetuating, self perpetuating parasite. You know, it's like it wants you to be more depressed. 
It does. There's a, and there's a comfort in isolating. Yeah, uh, definitely. When, when you're depressed. Definitely. And, and the smallest tasks seem just insurmountable. Definitely. I was just going to say insurmountable. I think, I think when I'm, when I'm depressed, I, the one thing that I try to do is I try to monitor my emotions kind of from a distance. Like, okay, how am I feeling? How is this? Okay, I felt like I haven't really wanted to do anything for the past two weeks. I've been crying. I've been eating too much or I haven't been eating at all. I've, you know, I've been turning down opportunities to hang out with my friends. There's something, there's something wrong here. And when I feel that way, then I, I feel like I have to be proactive. I have to be like, okay, what can I do? But I also think that I probably have a milder depression than some people I know who are just kind of in this hole and really can't get out. Whenever I'm in depression, I feel like it's, 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 I'm in a hole, but you know, there are rocks in the walls that I can climb mm. out of. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have that, I think, <laughs> to have the, to have the, the, you know, least, to have the less, you know, uh, we have a, a, a go ahead, yeah, finish your thought. The less severe, you know, kind of depression, I guess. Well, we have, uh, surveys on the yeah. website that people fill out anonymously. And one of them is uh, a survey called Struggle in a Sentence. And people will try to describe in a sentence uh, their issue. And yeah. somebody described depression as you're drowning and everybody is yelling at you, learn how to swim. Yeah, that's a really good. And I, I still struggle with it. And I, get, and I get frustrated sometimes when I think about depression because I know that's something that I don't like. And you it's know. so easy because yeah. of the lack of productivity to view it as a uh, a weakness. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And, you know, but you can't, when somebody's down there, you know, you can't get them out. And there is definitely this anxiety in me where, like, I see friends dealing with it, and a lot of my friends deal with it, where I just want to be like, you don't have to be this way. You can get on medication. You can find a purpose in your life. And, I mean, I don't believe that there is any real almighty purpose for ourselves, but I'm a strong believer in creating your own meaning and your own purpose. Mm -hmm. I'm a very strong believer in that. I am too. And, uh, and finding that kind of thread in your life. And it's so, you know? it's so hard when you're filled with fear and you think you need some genius master plan to feel yeah. safe in the future. When in reality, what, what has helped me and helps yeah. other people is to just get honest, find safe people, totally. get vulnerable and do something nice for somebody else. Yeah. And, and that, Human connection yeah. uh, helps my anxiety so much. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, and I think that's why I like, like, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a Buddhist, but I do like the idea of like, life is going to be, you know, it's in flux. A lot of crazy stuff's going to happen. And I shouldn't use the word crazy, but I, I, it's hard to get that word out we of my can, vocabulary. I think we can use the word crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I've told myself people aren't crazy. You know, maybe things are, you know, and that's kind of been my compromise until I can phase it out of my vocabulary. Um, or, or I guess if you're calling something crazy, it's, it's someone crazy. It's facetiously. Crazy moment. But yeah. still, yeah, but still, you shouldn't call a person crazy. Um, yeah, depression is a motherfucker. I think anxiety, you can, there are ways to deal with it. I have this book, the, uh, panic attack workbook. Hmm. And the thing about. Oh my God, I need to get that. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it really is amazing. And I think that I've probably done wonders for its sales because I have people like tweet at me all the time saying, what is that book? I need to get it. Yeah. I've done breathing exercises from it and videos with my friends. Uh, and there's, uh, so there's this, um, 
there's there's uh, what they do in there is they teach you how to just kind of float through the panic, mm-hmm. and it's the fear of fear, you know. And panic attacks. What what is a panic attack or an anxiety attack? It is it is a false alarm. You know, and like when I think about it, it will not kill you. A panic attack will not kill you. Exactly. Yeah. That's the most important thing to know. Nobody has ever died from a panic attack. There was, I don't know, when I think about panic attacks now, what I think about is how my first year at NYU, uh, a fire alarm would go off every Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And it would just go off, and and sometimes we would have to leave the building, and sometimes we wouldn't. But after a while, you came to expect it, and they were and they were Tuesdays. You never really knew. I don't know if you knew like what time they were going to happen. They usually happened when I was trying to take a nap between classes. But that's always what I imagine now when I think of panic attacks, because that's what it is. It's you know this sort of holdover response from you know from from years of evolution or. Years of, you know, your ancestors getting, you know, persecuted or, or you know, abused or killed off in wars or enslaved or whatever, you know? Or, or it was a great motivator to stay alive. Definitely. I mean, the thing is that I'm definitely, like, I definitely have, like, the strongest, um, the strongest, like, what is that, what is that word? The, survival the instinct? Survival instinct, totally, yeah. I, I have the strongest, you know, uh, self-preservation instinct. Of like anybody I know, and I think that's why. I mean, I haven't. I don't know. It's kind of. It's kind of when I want to get something done. It's kind of like a battle to see whether it's my strong self-preservation instinct, which is like, got to make a legacy. You got to do something. You got to leave something behind. You got to help people. You got to reach out to people. You've got to do this. And my other one, which is like, I'm crap. What am I doing? I can't do this. I'm you know my 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 self-destructive streak, which is like I'm just gonna lie in bed. You know, so it's kind of a war between, you know, self-preservation and, uh, or, or, you know, and self-destructiveness. I heard somebody uh, say one time in a support group meeting that I have a tyrant, uh, they were talking about themselves, I have a tyrant and a rebel in my head, and the tyrant barks at me at what I should be doing, and the rebel yeah. says, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any of that. We're going to do nothing. Yeah. Instead of, instead of. You know, it's and it's yeah. zero or ten instead of instead of five. At least for me, that's uh, that totally. that really rang some some bells for me. Yeah. Talk talk. You you have a book uh, that you're working on. It hasn't come out yet. Has it's it? coming out in September. Okay, so yeah, you're done September with it. September 13th. Yep, I'm done. And it's uh, give me the name of it. Uh, where am I now? Uh, where am I now? And uh, what was it like when you were writing that book, dealing with your perfectionism? It was really hard. It was it was really hard. Uh, but one thing that I've learned to do, and I think if you are able to do this, you should, is learn to take criticism. I also think that, like, because I grew up in, like, such extremes, I also had, like, like even, like, politically, my father was very conservative, but I was growing up in Hollywood and theater, which is, you know, um, extremely liberal, extremely left-wing. I, I kind of had this capacity to sort of look at things from different perspectives, probably to my own detriment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I sometimes, which causes me to overthink and be like, and on the other hand, another hand, and I'm going to say this thing. But when I'm saying that, I'm not actually saying this other thing. I'm not saying that. I totally do that. I and it's really, caveats when I talk. And it's really hard if you're cut off from your feelings because then you don't really know what your opinion is. You just look yeah. to the opinion that will make the world the most safe for you. Yeah, it definitely, yeah, it definitely is. And I think that appeasing is something that, you know, I, I think I learned to do at a young 
age. I'm I not even a, sure why. I but. went to a peasing finishing school. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. I I definitely know mm. that. And then, you know, you appease and then you get mm. angry about it later on and resentful. And that's that's a pattern that I've had to try to break in myself. Writing it, though, I kind of... I, I, I've given myself sort of this three-day kind of thing where you finish some writing and you gloat and then you send it off somewhere and you get feedback and then you mope. You mope because you're like, "Hmm, everything sucks. I can't read and write something. And it's really easy to get stuck in that moping space, but then you have to move on. And I think for me, a lot of that involved me going, hey, can you actually give me some guidelines? Can you say we need this by then? Because then I can just focus on doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I remembered my, my, you know, my father kept saying the perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, you have to just make sure that it's good and you have to just do that. And when I have somebody putting pressure on me, when I have somebody saying, hey, we need this by Thursday, I will have it by Thursday. You know, so that has definitely been something that has helped uh is having is having that i also had an editor who was she was she was sort of a a a dynamo in that very kind of like you know serious focused way and it's great because i mean i would talk to her and like i've got ocd i was diagnosed with adult add i don't know if it's actually true but my mind wanders all over the goddamn place. So it was kind of her job to be like, okay, let's rein this in, <laughs> you know? So I would, I would go on and on and on, and she would be like, we can cut this. And that's the thing that I've, I've trained myself to do in the past few years, and it's been so hard to do. But I've trained myself to be like, okay, I need to cut this. And sometimes I lie to myself and I'll say, okay, I'll use it in another thing someday later. I'll, you know, I'll tell it on stage. I'll tell it in a different story. I'll fictionalize it. I'll do this. And and that that makes it easier for me. Um, give me some uh, snapshots from your childhood, your adolescence, um, even your twenties that you think um, have kind of shaped you into who you are, or that were profound or painful. I mean, we've touched on some of them. Um, um, let me think. If you can think of any, yeah, there's there have definitely been a lot. Um, I, I'm, I'm, the thing is, I, I have so many stories like this that I know that I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to, I think that one of the things is like my relationship with my sister. Um, my sister was, had just turned three when our mom died and I already took care of my sister a lot. And I remember the time that like, I got into a fight with her. I called her a jerk and I like pushed her out of the door. I, like I slammed the door on her. My mom came up to me afterwards saying, Anna was, you know, was, was just devastated. She kept saying, Mara called me jerk. Mara called me jerk. And, and, you know, she later said to, to my dad, like loud enough for me to hear, like, you know, she really looks up to Mara a lot. And, and so there were, there was moments like that where I was like, oh, okay, I have to. I have to be good for my sister already. I, I knew that. And then when my mom got sick, it, it felt like that even more. And I remember when my mom was dying, we went to say like goodbye to her. And she said to my sister, like, good night, Anna. And Anna said, okay, mommy, see you in the morning. 
and it just tore me apart and it broke my heart. And I felt this immediate need like I am going to need to protect her for the rest of her life. And for years I couldn't think about that without crying. And I think I wrote about it in my book and I think that that actually kind of helped me with that a little bit. And uh, another thing is I remember when my mom was really sick, she said, she asked when she was like disoriented, she said, what time is it? And we told her and then she said, well, what day is it? And now even then, you know, people like to talk about triggers and stuff, but sometimes when people ask what time is it, I, I flinch because it makes me think of a time when my mom, who was so strong and resilient and passionate and dynamic was vulnerable. And that was really, really hard for me. There was another moment in my adolescence where, you know, my father kind of had to be strong too. And he was, um, he was never very like open and emotional about his feelings. But there was one time that I got into a fight. We got into a fight, just stupid teenage fight. And I said, I feel like we're not even a family anymore. We're just pretending to be one. And he got quiet for a second. And then he started telling me what it had been like to lose my mom and how it had felt to him. And I'd been crying before just in that sort of angry teenage, I'm going to try to argue with you, but I'm going to immediately end up crying anyway thing. But he started talking about like what a loss it had been and what our mom had meant to him. And, and I just, I, I completely lost it. I cried and he just kept talking very, and it was all very sort of like monotone. It wasn't very varied or emotional. It was just him speaking very honestly. And it made me realize, it made me think about it from his perspective. I think, I don't know, maybe I was angry at him in some way and I don't know why I would have been, but he, he opened up to me that, that day and it, it really and made me think about these things. I think, um, I think, uh, yeah, there were, there were definitely a lot of those. Um, I had, I, I had, uh, like when I, I had a serious boyfriend once and I said, and he, he, he said to me like, he was like, you have a lot of anxiety and depression, don't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I like he like we he knew that I had that, but he and I guess I'd been going through a rough time. And he said, uh, "Have you been feeling suicidal?" And I was like, "No. I mean, every now and then the thought crosses my mind, but I don't think I would actually do it." And and I I like crying. I think it's cathartic. But the guy I was dating at the time, he did not he did not like crying and he said that would be i think he said something like that would be the first thing you would do to me that would really that would really hurt me that would that would hurt me so deeply and i was like you mean the last thing and he's like no i mean the first it would hurt me for the rest of my life and he started to cry and I think for a long time, I thought of my mental health issues as something that only kind of affected me, something that like other people didn't. I mean, it, 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 I think I saw it as like other people see me as, 
you know, they see me as crazy. I didn't realize that it hurt them to see me in pain too. And I think that that changed the way that I looked back on my relationship with my parents and my family and how, you know, frustrated and sad they could get. And it, it made me realize like, oh, this is, this is, you know, if I did commit suicide, it would hurt people. It would actually, I do mean something to people. And it didn't, and I didn't feel good. I felt awful, <laughs> you know, and, but, but it was, it was this, it was just this, this, uh, I don't know. It was this, it was this moment and it's, it's just one that stayed with me. The, I think. the, the one we had a, a guest on, um, Kevin Briggs, who was a CHP officer who worked the Golden Gate Bridge. And so he talked yeah. to a lot of people who were suicidal. Yeah. And the thing he said that every single one of them said was that they felt that they had become a burden. Yeah. And I think in that moment of distorted thinking, we think we do that zero or t or 10, you know, totally. we don't do five. Yeah. We think that just because we may have a conflict with somebody or yeah. something isn't going well, that it means that we're a burden. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I didn't really understand. I was like, oh, I mean, you know, of course he loves me, but it's not like, you know, and it's it that I think was it, it really, it really made me realize. And I mean, I also felt kind of ashamed and I've had to tell some people before, like, you know, what the times when I was suicidal, it wasn't your fault, <laughs> you know, because I, I felt, I felt, I felt very ashamed, you know, but I think that people are always kind of going to, to see that as like, you know, as, as like a, a giant fuck you, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know. I think that, uh, it made me, it, it just made me reevaluate, you know, my illnesses as a thing that wasn't just me. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just me anymore. And I also spent a lot of nights like calling the NYU, uh, the NY NYU had this like health hotline because there'd been a like rash of suicides there that you could call at any time. And it was actually pretty great. It was like a suicide hotline, but they also did regular healthcare stuff too. So like, if, uh, you know, a condom breaks or something, you can call them and they'll be like, well, now it's over the counter, but back then they could be like, oh, well, here's where you get plan B, you know, stuff like that. Here's where you get HIV testing, you know, things like that. And, and, uh, but I used to call them in the middle of the night because I was having existential anxiety attacks. I would call them saying, I don't know why I'm alive, but I'm afraid to die. <laughs> and, and they would, and I love that I can laugh about this now. And they were like, that's your problem. Not that like, you know, school is stressful or anything. It's, it's that, you know, and they obviously didn't say that, but they said to me, and they were like, we've been taking a lot of philosophy classes. Have you been doing these things? And they said to me, like, listen, you can't let that stuff. Have you been going through a religious crisis? And, and, you know, and all these things I kind of was. And, they would say to me, like, you have to see that stuff as separate from the life you're living, you know, which is something like I always wonder and I actually think I write about this in my book. It might have been cut from my book, but I met uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson when I was 21 or 22. And the idea of like the bigness of the universe, as as my friend Chris always puts it, the infinite bigness of the universe kind of scared me. You know, the idea of infinity was always terrifying to me as a kid. And uh, and so was the idea of going to heaven and being there forever. Like, I was really afraid that I'd get bored in heaven, which 
should be the title of a book, Getting Bored in Heaven. That's that's my mm. next book. Uh, but uh, so so just like the bigness of it all and just feeling so small. I I and I asked him, I said, how do you deal with the existential anxieties? And we're, you know, like Barnes and Noble. And he goes, what's your name? I get Mar- said Mara. He says, Mara, have you taken a philosophy class? I was like, yeah, I took ethics and, you know, I took logic. And he's like, uh, and he's like, yeah, I can tell. And I'm like, how, how did you know? And he's like, only people who take philosophy courses use the word existential. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I am actually less down to earth than an astrophysicist. Great. <laughs> and yeah, and he told me he written a, he wrote an essay called The Cosmic Perspective. But the thing about people like him, I think, is that, I mean, they, they look at the universe, you know, they look at the universe every day, but they have to be grounded in their own lives. You know, they have to, they look at the universe, they look at like how incredibly humbling it is, but then like, you know, he like goes home to his wife and kids, you know, and, and he watches TV and he does these things and, and, you know, he eats dinner. It's just kind of like, I feel like I always got caught up in, these people are just kind of like, the sun is going to, uh, you know, the sun is going to burn out in a few billion years. Uh, I guess I'll go have dinner now. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas I was like, the sun is going to burn out in a few billion years. What are we going to do? Right. And I had this, you know, I saw Ghostbusters last night and there's a scene where Kristen Wiig's character is like running through the streets telling people that they need to prepare, that they need to to prepare for something. And I felt like, oh, God, because I, I always have nightmares where I'm the voice of reason. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm the voice of reason. I'm the one saving everybody. This isn't good. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't, you know. I'm not physically or emotionally strong enough for it. I, I think one of the most important cornerstones in becoming emotionally healthy is learning to be comf- comfortable with unresolved questions and problems. Yeah, well, it, I, I think that you are definitely right. And I mean, I've always thought, like a few years ago, I thought about, uh, I thought about if I ever have kids, and I do want to raise children, Um because I'm I'm pretty good with them, and I'm I'm like I I shower my niece and nephew with like so much love and attention, it's ridiculous. Um, and I talk about them all the time. I'm always bringing out their pictures at parties and stuff, and uh, it's it's kind of embarrassing. But they, uh, but I know like they talk about death sometimes, and my nephew was saying that like it makes him feel sad to think about it sometimes. And and I I remember thinking like, how am I ever going to talk to my own kids about death? Because yeah. it's just such a triggering thing for me and um i think you sit him down and you say just pray that yours isn't slow and painful because (laughs) that can happen let's go outside and play yeah well and actually i think that there's there's um you know i think there are different ways of of doing it like uh my brother actually said that like the things that like taught him about death were like uh Mr. Hooper died on Sesame Street and they were just like, he's gone now. We can think about him and, you know, remember him, but he's gone now. And he said, oh, weirdly enough, Top Gun, when Goose dies, he's <laughs> oh like, oh my God, he's like, he's like, yeah, when you're a kid. And the thing they say in there is they're like, yeah, uh, he's gone and there will be others, which is and I, I think I said to him, like, you know, you could have just as easily said, so it goes, which is Vonnegut, which is a little more highbrow, but, but okay, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and my friend, Jenny Jaffe, who runs, uh, I don't know if you've had her on the show before, but I'm you would, not. oh, you would love her. She's, she's a great comedian and writer, and she also uh, runs an organization called You Are Okay, mm-hmm. that does like video and media outreach. 
especially aimed at like young adults talking about mental health. Uh, I have a video there. I think I've reached out to her. I'm not sure. You might have. Yeah. And she's had a really busy, she's she's had a busy few months, but she says, and she, she uh, has OCD as well. And we always say that it was probably better that we knew each other as grownups because what if our worries, if, if, if we met each other as kids, our worries might have like compounded. <laughs> but she said that, uh, she says that, um, she told her mom, like, why are we born if we just die one day when she was really young? And her mom said, you like cake, right? She said, yeah. She said, you, if you imagine you have a big piece of cake, you're going to finish that cake eventually. But the cake's still worth eating, right? Wow. And, and Jenny was like, "Yeah, yeah, it is." And that's uh, and that I think is like a really good way of explaining it to kids, you know? Like the cake's gonna end, yeah, but but there's cake, and cake is great. <laughs> <laughs> so so thank you, Eve Jaffe, for that. Yes, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, anything? Any other moments uh, before we do some some fears and loves? Oh, let's see. Um, or issues you want to talk about? Let's see. I think that, uh, oh God, there's, there've been so many different moments in my life and a lot of them I've written about in my book. I think, um, I think I sort of, I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember when it was that I had a moment where I like looked at someone and realized that they were being really sarcastic and cynical. And that meant that they were in a lot of pain. Like, I feel like cynicism I've always said is like a callous, it is, you know, it's, it is, or, or like a blister, you know, it is, it's something, you know, it's developed in reaction. It's developed in reaction to something. And there is no greater sign of showing that you are vulnerable than being cynical. I think, I think that was definitely something that I that you were afraid of being vulnerable. Yeah. Well, actually, if you want to know one of the defining moments, I, I actually, I would say this was a life changer. So I took these classes in college and, um, and uh, I had this teacher named Marlene Pennison who used to do dance and choreography instruction. And she was brilliant and amazing. And she, uh, I've always had trouble imagining um, visual stuff in my head. Like I have a very limited visual imagination and I, I can't connect visual spatial things at all. Uh, like if I see somebody, and this was hard when I was like doing musical theater, somebody would do choreography in front of me. I couldn't remember it in my head and replicate it in my body mm. because I couldn't hold on to that image. But I did notice that when I started taking classes with her, that started to change. I started to actual, actually imagine and visualize things because we were working on choreography in space and, uh, and like body language and the way that people interact with each other. And, uh, that taught me, she taught me so much but I remember she had a class, we had a class that we called cow creating original work. I think it's called something a little more professional now in that <laughs> school. Um, but we had 10 minutes on stage to do whatever we wanted. You could write a song, you could do a poem, you could do a performance art piece, you could do burlesque, you could do comedy, you could write a little play, but it had to just be you on stage for 10 minutes and you had to write it and perform it. So, my first piece I did there, and we did one per semester. My first piece I did there was, it wasn't great. It was, it was, there was some good dialogue in it, but it, it didn't really, I don't know. It was kind of political, kind of not. And then my second piece, I thought uh, that I, I wanted to write about my father and what my father meant to me because most of my life, I think I thought that I was very much my mother's child because I was loud and I was passionate and, 
you know, I wasn't quietly pragmatic and, and practical and the quiet kind of intelligent and intelligence, intelligent and passion or, or actually I'd say like my dad is, my dad is just, he's just kind of quiet. He's tas you know, taciturn. He's, um, he's a very sweet, gentle guy. Um, he's very conservative, but there's something very sort of like Ron Swanson about him where he, you know, he's, he's almost exclusively dated like really tough, strong women and been really proud of them. My stepmother's the same way. She's very tough, very strong. And so, uh, so he, I wrote this piece about our relationship and what I did was I, um, I talked about, I, I set it up so it was like we were playing in the parents' bedroom because parents' bedrooms are always the best places to play when you're a kid mm -hmm. because they have all, they always have the nicest bedroom in the house and how I, we used to pretend we used to play there. So I went in there, uh, like I entered and, uh, I took off the sweater I was wearing and I put on a sweatshirt of my dad's and it was me talking about him, but also kind of pretending to be him and using the sweater like it was me, like holding it, like, you know, like dancing with it the way that my dad would and like playing R.E.M., which was always his favorite. And, you know, and I mean, my dad's still alive, but I wrote this piece about the way that I had come to see him and how when I was young, he was just the fun dad. You know, he didn't have to worry about these things so much. He could be he could be the good cop. He could be the one taking us on camping trips, you know. But after our mother died, he had to be the disciplinarian. He had so many you know, different struggles and, and this, you know, and I, I staged this thing and, um, and I remember I feeling just completely in the zone when it happened, like it just could not have gone more perfectly. It went exactly the way that I wanted it to go. And I remember at the end, you know, I turned my back to the audience at the end of it and the lights went down and I, when I heard the applause, I felt like I had never heard applause like that in my life. And I'd done shows at Radio City Music Hall, you know? Mm -hmm. I'd done shows, I'd, you know, I'd been at the Oscars. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd sung at the White House. But it felt, it felt like I had never heard anything like that before in my life. And the way people were cheering kind of just shook me to my, my core. And my friends were coming up to me afterwards crying and saying, that was about my dad, too. Wow. That was about my dad, too. And I realized after that, and I remember my boyfriend at the time, like his eyes just shining, being like, I am so happy for you. I am, he was like, and he said to me, I am so lucky to be with somebody so talented. And, and, and I got, I got an A on the assignment, which A's are rare in theater school. <laughs> and I got, when we, when we, it came, it came time for like my friends and, and peers to give me feedback. I got one like mildly critical piece uh, criticism and then the rest of them were all like, I loved this. I loved this. I loved this. And I think that's when I realized that what was going to be my like my life's work was kind of finding vulnerability and and doing that and not always necessarily talking about myself, but finding those moments of pure vulnerability, you know, and I remember when I was writing it, I thought about how my brother had been in a car accident a few years later and how like a few years earlier and how, when he was like in a coma, he's totally fine now, by the yeah. way. Um, but when he'd been in, in a coma, like seeing my very strong parents having to go through something so much, so painful, I think it, it really definitely made an impact on me and it made me realize like, 
oh, this is this is like what I'm about. This is what I want to do. And it also made me realize that I could be a writer. So it it that one piece remains one of my favorite things that I've ever written. That sounds beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one final question before we go to the fears and the loves, because I know people are going to want to know why. Why did you uh, walk away from acting? I consider it kind of a mutual breakup. I mean, honestly, if you look at the things that make up a good actor, what makes a good actor? Them being um, sort of relaxed and in the moment, making choices, making decisions, not overthinking things, um, putting a lot, a lot of effort into their appearance and uh, physicality and such. Um, and being willing to be in the public eye all the time and not have any secrets. I have none of those qualities. <laughs> I have none of those. I'm terrible at making decisions. I, I'm terrible at making decisions. I overthink everything. People in, at, you know, in acting classes used to call me cerebral and not mean it as a compliment. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, the, that's just not, does not play to my strengths. Uh, I still do do voiceover. I've always done voiceover, but I think voiceover is a lot more mental anyway. And it's it's definitely something that I've always loved. And also, I don't need to, you know, work out for two hours every single day to do voiceover. You know, I can work out a couple times a week because I like it. Um, and there's so there's there's definitely there's a lot of that. But I think a lot of it was also just pressure on appearance. Hmm. You know, it was a lot of like. I was not cute anymore and I was not a very cute teenager. So um, I felt kind of, I felt kind of like I had to be, I don't know, I had to look a certain way and I didn't. And I always say that Hollywood isn't immoral, it's amoral, you know? And you are often reduced to a number. You are often reduced to your looks, your, you know, demography, mm-hmm. your, you know, I, I would be, I would be one of a million petite brunettes. You know, petite snarky brunettes. And, you know, Ellen Page and Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick already exist. So, you know, (laughs) what even is there for me? Uh, So so there was a lot of that. Also, like, I like to be in control. I mean, not always. I I wouldn't want to be like president or anything, but I like to be in control of of small things. You know, I didn't really, you know, and, and seeing my name in lights doesn't especially appeal to me. But like seeing executive producer Mara Wilson, you know, written by Mara Wilson, created by Mara Wilson in credits, like, that would be badass, you know? So that was always the stuff that I that I wanted to do. So it was a lot of things. It was me realizing this doesn't suit me anymore, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not really happy doing this. And also Hollywood being like, yeah, you know, we don't, we don't really want you either, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of my fans had this assumption that if I wanted to be an actor right now, I could just walk out there and be like, all right, make me a star, but... No, that's not how it works. Right. You know, that's not how it works. Uh, and, and so now when I act, it's just, you know, it's on a friend's show. It's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's fun or it's a passion project or it's a cameo. A great thing about being a, you know, C or D lister is that there are always cameos for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, that stuff pay the, those things pay the bills, but, uh, but, uh, it's not what I, I want. You know, if you have to be, if you want to be an actor, that's, it's not just a job, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And I don't like that lifestyle. Yeah. I, I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> and I say the same thing people say to me, why don't you do stand up anymore? And I say, um, I have an, an, a, uh, an agreement with uh, audiences that they don't show an interest in me and I won't show an interest <laughs> in them. And neither of us have broken our deal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I feel the same way about, uh, there are few places I disliked more than 
the small talk of a set. Yeah. It, it to me is like if you if you're depressed and conversations feel like lifting weights, being on a television set is yeah. like being at a wedding when you yeah. when you have the flu. It just I loved the people that I worked with and I loved that the fact that I was getting paid to show movies and eat food. But it was, I would just collapse on my bed when yeah. I would come home from a day and I couldn't wait until everything was over. And when the show got canceled, I felt a true sense of relief. Yeah. And yeah. I figured, well, why not listen to that? Yeah. I hate auditions. I hate, I hate auditions yeah. too. So um, I get it. I yeah. get it. Although your career is certainly larger and more uh, whatever than than mine. But I, 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 just, I, just, that, wanted but, to, yeah. I just wanted to say that I... I understand that. Yeah. And whatever self-respect I do have for myself, some of it comes from the fact that I listen to my soul. Yeah. Definitely. It definitely is. You know, I, I listened to myself and I was like, and, you know, and, and I think that for a while I was like, oh, I'll just be a stage actress. But that is a... That is a very tough life. That is and even more of a lifestyle. It's than... even more of a lifestyle for not much pay or recognition, you know? So I was like, okay, I can't do that. I still do love performing. I still do, you know, like getting up on stage and, you know, telling stories and, and things like that. And, but who's, and who's I, the, what's the voice you do on Night Vale? Oh, I do the voice of the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home, which <laughs> is... I, I love playing creepy characters. I really it's do. The best. And yeah, and uh, I did a vo voice on BoJack Horseman that was really fun. And I'm doing, yeah, I, I've done, uh, I've done some, I've done, I, I love doing voiceover. I really do. It feels so. so safe. It's so different than any other part of show business. Yeah, it you really You don't have is. to worry about what you look like. You and don't, yeah. nobody necessarily knows who that voice is. Yeah, so, but yeah. it's all mental. You know, I saw a clip the other day of Mark Hamill reading something in like his Joker voice. Mm -hmm. And it was terrifying. He was so good at it. And it was just him like sitting on a stage, you know, just reading something and doing the creepy laugh. And I was like, and he just... It just transforms, you know. It's yeah. it's something that I definitely yeah. love, and I definitely want to do more yeah. of. Well, speaking of love, let's let's do some fears <laughs> and loves. Give me okay. uh, give me some fears. Okay. Um. Let's see. I am really afraid of if I move back to L.A., which I'm considering, uh, or if I split time here. Um. I am really afraid that I will feel as depressed as I did when I grew up in L.A. You know, I wouldn't have to deal with seasonal affective disorder. But I really, really hated growing up here. I thought that the sunlight felt intrusive. I felt agoraphobic every time I went outside. I I was anxious. I was depressed. I was sad. I was confused. And I'm really afraid that if I do move back here, I will have that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like being depressed here is hard because it's like... I feel like everybody here kind of assumes that it's like your fault if you're depressed. Everybody here is really quick to talk, talk to you about supplements and vitamins and yoga. And, you know, never mind that I'm actually doing those things already. And <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and also like it's sunny all the time. Why would you be sad? Give me one more fear and then we'll go to, okay. uh, loves. um, let me see. I'm afraid of going back to the lake that we used to go to when we were kids and uh, taking my niece and nephew out into the water to swim and them getting that uh, brain-eating amoeba mm. that uh, happens in lakes sometimes that used to happen 
only in southern lakes, but a lot of the northern lakes are getting warmer. So uh, yeah. the the you know amoeba is showing up there, and then they who are like my favorite people will die, and it will be my fault. Wow! So that is something that I actually worry about a lot. <laughs> Your brain should get paid for overtime. It really should. It yeah. really should. Um, give me some loves. Okay. Um, I love. I love uh, Soviet-era children's cartoons, like children's cartoons from the Soviet Union. Wow. Yeah. Those are like my favorite things. I like any kind of art that was created under like really strict uh, circumstances. Because it's so subversive. Because it's so, yeah, because it's subversive or because it has to follow such a limited rule, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's really interesting to see the interesting things they can get up to when, you know, you can't criticize the government or you can't, you know, you have to promote a certain agenda. You know, I also think there are also like girl groups in North Korea that like, that are amazing and like there's terrifying stories about them but yeah there's um there's one called Winnie Pooh which is Winnie the Pooh <laughs> and it feels very much true to life apparently one of the animators on Winnie the Pooh watched it with like the Soviet animators too watched the Winnie Pooh with them and afterwards leaned over and said yours is better it's it's really great it's really cute um you know, Vinnie Pooh actually looks like a little bear. The The mm. voice of Piglet is like adorable. There's also Chiboroshka, which is... Uh, Do you speak Russian? A little bit. A mm. little bit. I've been doing Duolingo. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he's uh, he's like the, uh, the Soviet equivalent of Mickey Mouse. And he's adorable. And his voice is so cute. And his best friend is a crocodile. Mm. And there's a crazy old lady that always... Uh, or not crazy. There's a mean mm. old lady that plays tricks on them. But at the end, she always learns. Mm. And it's really interesting to see. And at the end of every episode, they never learn to like be yourself or follow your heart the way you do in American cartoons. They learn that they should all work together and pool their oh. resources. Wow, that's to interesting. Be, yeah. And, and everybody should help out and do their yeah. part. So I love those. I think they're so they're so fascinating, but also they're just really well done. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna throw a love in here. Yeah. I love when you're kind of depressed, and all of a sudden there's a storm outside, and you feel yes. protected by your house. Yes, and it feels like uh, almost like the outside is reflecting what you're feeling inside, but you're. Protected from the physical representation of what you're experiencing. Totally. I've always loved thunderstorms for that same reason. I feel so safe in them. Yeah. I feel so safe in them. And I don't know, maybe there's something to be said about like feeling safe in chaos. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but yeah, I totally agree. Give me another one. Okay. Um I I Okay, I used to think when I was little that the most beautiful thing ever was when you were eating ice cream with a spoon and you cut into it with a spoon and the little pattern that it left behind in Mm. the ice cream. I thought that that was just the prettiest thing, the little like, you know, where it's slightly melted and where it's not. I thought the texture of that was just most gorgeous. That and like when you write with graphite and it's kind of worn down and it gives you that nice. Yeah, I always loved that. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. Um... Other ones, let's see. I love um, when you're eating Ben and Jerry's and you get a big piece of whatever. I did the that last is. night. My friends and I got got Ben and Jerry's last night, and that is the best. Yeah. yeah. What, what flavor? Uh, I got sweet cream and cookies, yeah. which is one of my favorites. But yeah, the cinnamon roll one is really good for that, and so is chocolate chip cookie dough and chocolate fudge brownie. Um, I love pine needles. I love the way that they smell. I love breaking them apart into little pieces because I mm. always need to keep my hands busy. Uh, yeah, I love the way that they smell, like the memories that they give me, playing with them, braiding mm. them. Like it's, they're very good for keeping your hands busy. I like pine needles, <laughs> and they smell good too. I love the smell of pine. 
I love uh, the beauty of uh, women's necks when their hair is yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it, totally. to me is like the most feminine uh, thing, and it's just so. Uh, I don't know what it is, yeah. but it's always always done something. Um, I love I love uh, old propaganda movies, mm-hmm. like things that they would use to teach. You know, are you a commie or a citizen, or um, even the like. You know, are you ready for marriage and like the old like puberty videos and the old like, you know, girls beware, boys beware, uh, creepy things. They're it's just really awesome. interesting. Yeah. all uh, And the drug ones, too. The oh, drug they're ones hilarious. Are amazing. They're hilarious. Yeah. Those are those are my favorites. Yeah. When I was in grade school, they did one and the for LSD, they showed a guy having a bad trip and a hot dog on the ground talking to him. Oh, right. I've seen that yes. one. Yeah. The girls like the hot dog said, don't eat me because I have a family. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, I Yeah, I love those. Um, give me another one. Let's see. Um, I I love the way that my cat uh, chirps in the morning, every morning. When I wake up, as soon as he sees me, he, he, um, I have two cats and one's just super lazy and the other one every morning he sees that I'm up and he goes and he comes over and he starts spooning with me immediately and purring. And yeah, he also, for a long time, he had really terrible breath Mm -hmm. because he was a rescue cat. So he had gingivitis. But I got used to it for a while, and so it was just like, okay, I guess I like my cat's terrible breath because I associate it with cuddles. Yeah. And now, and now, uh, yeah, but now he's been on antibiotics and he doesn't have that anymore. So um, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. He's he also does a thing where um, if you like say his name, or he used to do this. If you said his name across the room, he'd give you a little like head nod, like a little "What's up?" head nod. <laughs> you go Theo, and he'd go Merle, and just kind of nod his head at you. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I love the, our little dog's name is Herbert, and I love oh. when you scratch his butt. He he faces away from you, yeah, but he'll look over his shoulder, and <laughs> his eyes will kind of half close, and he has an underbite, and so oh. you see his little teeth, and then one of his back, like his right leg, yeah. will just kind of he'll he'll move his butt down a little bit, and his back right leg will slide out be- yeah. behind him towards you, and I, it's just so I don't know. I love dogs carrying things in their mouths. Yes. I think that is just the cutest thing. Cats, too, when they carry things, when an animal carrying something in its mouth makes me really happy. Especially <laughs> if it's a piece of food that they accidentally found that they weren't supposed to get, like a turkey leg yeah. or something, and they're carrying it over to their bed as if nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Or like when dogs, they pick up sticks on the road, but they like pick up like an actual like branch of a tree mm-hmm. that they, and they'll be like carrying like a whole branch down the block. I, I mm-hmm. love that. Yeah. Uh, give me another one. Okay. Um, I love, I love, um, I love, oh man. I love that when I talk about, uh, my, my nephew, when we told my nephew that, uh, gay people couldn't get married, he uh, got very serious and said, that's mean and rude. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I also just love that that were, those were his words, mean and rude. Um, yeah, I, I love that kid. I love watching my neighbor Totoro with him, uh, which is, you know, kind of our thing and, uh, eating ice cream and talking mm. about cats. Uh, yeah. I love when I get an email from a teenage listener who, um, is now feeling hope about their life or their situation. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely something. Or anybody, but especially teenagers cause they're stuck in 
a living circumstance that's beyond that's their control. That's beyond them. I love campfires. I love them. I love the smell of, of, you know, a nice campfire. It just reminds me of mm-hmm. the times when we did go camping and for some reason everything felt okay. Um, I love the detergent that my uh, middle school crush used. He was my best friend and I had a huge crush on him. He's also actually totally gay. Um, mm-hmm. But he used this detergent or, or something, so, or this soap, something about him just... Something about him just smelled amazing. And that was when I was 13. That was when I was like first starting to have feelings for boys and starting to like kind of have like romantic and and, like not really sexual, but just kind of being aware of like physiological Mm -hmm. responses and stuff. And so like the way that he smelled when I hugged him brings back so many memories and I've never found that detergent, <laughs> mm-hmm. but every now and then I'll like walk by a laundromat or something and I'll do a double take because yeah. I'll be like, Oh my God, that's it. What is it? Oh, yes. But sense is so closely linked to emotion. It totally is. It totally is. There are so many, Did I say sense or smell, I, smell the yeah. sense of, yes. Yeah. Well, sense, yeah. you know, uh, that's definitely mm-hmm. that. I also think that like the way a boyfriend smells is the best thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that like a partner smells is, is definitely, that's like the best smell in the world. Mara, thank you so much for coming and being so generous with your time thank and you letting so us, much. You know, uh, us in on uh, your inner life and uh, and all that stuff. And thank, thank you for you. all you do. No, it's been an honor. And thank you for all you do, too. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, it's at Mara Wright Stuff. Yeah, at Mara Wright Stuff. Uh, my website is MaraWilsonWrightStuff.com, though I haven't updated in a while. Uh, maybe by the time this comes out, I will. <laughs> and the name of the book that's coming out? Is Where Am I Now? out September 13th. And uh, if if this goes up before then, uh, it's available for, available. It is available for pre-order pretty much everywhere online. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Mark. Thanks. Many thanks to, uh, to Mara. Uh, before I read that piece uh, she wrote about Robin Williams, uh, I want to give some love to our sponsor for this episode, Probimune. Uh, as you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, research uh, suggests that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut. I can tell you personally that I have lived with an unhealthy gut and then lived with a healthy gut, and the difference is profound. Um when I did not have enough good bacteria in my gut, I was run down. Uh, I was super depressed. Um, I was intolerant to different kinds of foods. Um, I, I would get winded easily. Uh, and then once I started uh, getting good bacteria into my gut on good probiotics, um, it, it all changed uh, for the better. Um Probimune's industry-leading fermentation process ensures that the largest number of good bacteria are delivered alive in the gut because it's not about how many billions of bacteria are in the probiotic itself. It's about how many survive the digestive process. Probimune is easy to use, easy to travel with, which is hugely important, uh, and does not require uh, refrigeration. Uh, That's what I mean by uh, easy to travel with. It comes in... uh, uh, you can get it in a little, uh, like, eyedropper-sized um, bottles. Um, right now, you guys can get the exclusive offer of a free bottle of Probimune when you sign up for automated delivery. That's a uh, $34.95 uh, bottle of Probimune free. All you got to do is go to probimune.com. That's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout. 
You'll receive your first bottle of Probimune free, and you just pay six seventy-five shipping and handling. Then each month, Young Health will automatically send you your supply of Probimune for thirty-four ninety-five with free shipping and handling. So go to probimune.com. That's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code Mental at checkout to get your free bottle today. All right, here is the uh, the piece that Mara wrote on her blog and her blog again is um mara wilson Wright stuff and i think that's it i don't have it i'll put the link on the uh on our website um and her piece is uh called remembering robin and she writes he always reminded me a little of my father robin williams as i knew him was warm gentle expressive nurturing and brilliant while it can be hard for me to remember filming Doubtfire, I've been flooded with memories in the past few days. It's humbling to know I'm one of the few people who is there for those moments, that he's no longer around to share them. He was a creator as much as a performer. After one of my friends posted Robin's, quote, impressions of a hot dog on Facebook, I realized she had no idea that that wasn't in the script. It was supposed to be a monologue where he listed every voice he could do, but he decided to take the ones he'd been given, add more of his own, and just riff for a while. Chris Columbus, our director, would let Robin perform one or two takes with what was written then do uh, as many more takes as Robin had variations. Sometimes I wonder why they didn't give him at least partial screenwriting credit. He was so quick and prolific, coming up with so many lines and bits, even though there was no way we could use them all. At the end of the first dinner scene, where I said my most infamous line, he uses chopsticks like antennae to uh, make me smile. That was a reference to a take that didn't end up in the film, where Robin was supposed to make a speech about his new job boxing and shipping cans. Um and then turn it into a song. He went off book, as always, and before we knew what he was doing, the chopsticks were by his ears, and he was freestyle rapping from the point of view of an ant railing against the humans who kept stepping on his friends. Robin would do anything to make me and the other kids laugh. Those hand puppets that dance alongside the genie and Aladdin's friends like me, that must have been his suggestion because Robin made those in real life. He'd break them out between takes to entertain us. Uh, I don't like you, his left hand would say to his right. You smell like poop. I would laugh uproariously. I was five, so poop jokes were the height of hilarity. As his right hand yelled back, well, there's no toilet paper at my house. When he saw me watching him work on his laptop during downtime, he played a sound file of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz screeching, You wicked old witch! When we were filming the petting zoo birthday scene, he fed a pony oats out of his hat, then held it out to me and said, Want to wear it? When we were filming the climactic dinner party scene, he would make his carpet bag bark like a dog under the table, then order it to be quiet. He seemed to know instinctively what we would find funny and never had to resort to saying anything that was inappropriate for children. He was, after all, a father himself. Robin was on so much of the time that I was surprised to hear my mother describe him as shy. When he talks to you, she told her friends, he'll be looking down at his shoes the whole time. I figured he must have been different with grown-ups. I wouldn't see that side of him myself until a few years later when I was invited to be part of a table read of What Dreams May Come. He came alive in the reading and had us all laughing at lunch, but my strongest impression came when we saw each other for the first time that day. Robin crossed to me from across the room, got down to my level and whispered, Hi, how are you? He asked how my family was doing, how school was, never raising his voice and only sometimes making eye contact. 
He seemed so vulnerable. So this is what mom meant, I thought. It was as if I was seeing him for the first time. He was a person now. As of this past Monday, Robin and I had not spoken in a few years. We weren't on bad terms. We just lost track of each other. He was still working in films. I was not anymore. He still lived in California. I'd moved probably nine times since I last had his contact information. The last time I saw him, I was a freshman at NYU, and he was filming August Rush in Washington Square Park. I went up to him while he was walking away from the set of his, uh, to his trailer and called his name. He turned around, not sure what to make of the girl in the glasses and NYU hoodie, calling him like she knew him. It's me, I said. It's Mara. Oh, Mara. He told me how grown up I looked and asked how I liked NYU. It was small talk, but something about the way Robin looked at me made it feel like he truly cared. This was someone for whom everything mattered. I wish we had talked more. I wish I had reached out more. Being a worst-case scenario kind of person, I worried so many times about losing so many people I care about, but I never could imagine losing Robin. I'm glad people are starting to talk seriously about mental health, depression, and suicide. I've discussed my OCD, anxiety, and depression in the past and will continue to do so more in the future. Mental health needs to be taken as seriously as physical health. The two are inseparable. But I'm afraid people will romanticize what Robin went through. Please don't romanticize mental anguish. I know how many people, I know many people who think to be an artist means you have to suffer or at least wallow in old miseries. It's not only an incorrect assumption. There are comedians who had happy upbringings, I swear. But it will only hurt them and the other people who care about them. Artists who struggled with mental illness, trauma, disease, addiction, often the latter as a way of self-medicating after the first three, did not want or welcome it. I don't know if I'd consider myself an artist, but speaking as someone who sometimes makes stuff, my best work is created when I'm content and contemplative, looking back on painful times rather than in the middle of them. To focus on someone's pain instead of their accomplishments is an insult to them. As my friend Patrick put it, a person is a person first, and a story second. Thank you for that, Mara. This is an email that I got. Um, actually, I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to try to trim, trim this down. Um, this is something I saw on Facebook that just really fucking upset me. And it's a picture of a single mom uh, with her baby. Um, it's an illustration, not actual. And it says, He may leave you broken, but your child will make you whole. Stop putting men before your kids. Now, I agree with the last sentence, stop putting men before your kids. But saying, He may leave you broken, but your child will make you whole. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say put your whole wholeness before your kids because they are not there to fill you you are there to try to fill them and hopefully the byproduct of that is that you feel fulfilled um, now i'm just going to assume that they meant the latter uh, but if not that is a horrible horrible way of looking at a single mother situation and virtually guarantees that that child will have relationship difficulties probably become a people pleaser and lose touch with what they want and what they feel because they'll become trained to feel like I got to fill mommy. I got to keep mommy happy. 
I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Capt, and he writes uh, about his love addiction. We had one amazing date, and I'm already scared you'll leave me. Maybe I should just stay single. I'm, I'm obviously still having problems. I haven't worked out. Um, snapshot from his life. You were loudly, uh, this is addressed to his mom, you were loudly fucking your third husband of five so far while my friends were over visiting. We were around 10 or 11, and I was so angry that you were embarrassing me that I slammed my fist on the door and told you to stop. The door swung open. You slapped me. The door closed, and you went right back at it. You did the exact same thing the morning we found out my beloved dog got ran over. The worst part? The fucking government's the one that chose you over my dad. Thank you for that. Wonder Girl writes about her anxiety, not being able to start homework for the fear of being too stupid to finish it. Uh, a snapshot from her life. I remember one day waking up to go to a job interview, uh, looking for an outfit for two hours, finally getting dressed and sitting in my room, not able to get out uh, for the fear of failure. An hour later taking my pants off, going back to bed, crying and drowning in the spiral of dark thoughts that you know they're not realistic, but you're too ashamed to share with anyone. I think Kleenex should make a pillow, and you don't have to get up to blow your nose. And I wish I could say that I have never been so depressed that I couldn't get out of bed to blow my nose and I used my t-shirt, um, but I cannot say that. And I have the feeling I'm not the only one. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Call Me Kate, and she writes, For my own sanity, I hadn't had contact with my family in four years, and when my dad passed in May of this year, it was a sad but also terrifying experience facing my mother, and the events that followed over the next few days after his death were awful. Nothing awesome about it. I was an afterthought in the obituary, and there was lots of anger and tension and hurt flying around. So I was counting on my support to come from my best friend of 26 years and my ex that I had just ended a 10-year relationship with. Imagine my utter shock when Alan did not change his plans for his birthday trip to Reno that weekend to accompany me to the services. He was at my house dropping off our dog on his way out of town early Friday morning and said, oh, I thought the services were today. If I'd known they were tomorrow, I would have had you pick up my prescription so I could have gotten an earlier start on my drive. I've never spoken another word to him since. Never felt closure like that before, and as much as it hurt, it set me free in a way that still amazes me. When someone shows you who they really are, fucking believe them. I've never felt freedom like this. I love it. Thank you so much for that, because I needed to hear that. I needed... I needed to be reminded uh, of that because I think for some of us, especially those of us that were raised as people pleasers, we we will ignore mountains of evidence that somebody is unhealthy for us and we'll look for the one thing they did that could possibly be construed as positive um, and say, well, if I ignore that, then I'm a terrible person. Anna writes about her anxiety, a sometimes crippling discomfort with people, whether I know them or not, making me feel like I'd rather be anywhere, really anywhere, other than right there, right then. Oh my God, do I relate to that. 
snapshot from her life. At a fundraiser, well attended, but not knowing many people except for my boyfriend, he leaves to check out the silent auction, and I sit alone at a table with strangers all around, hoping and praying that no one comes to sit at the table with me because I don't want to have to make small talk, but being so incredibly uncomfortable sitting there alone. Oh my God, I laughed out loud when I read that one. That describes the last party that uh, that I went to. Um, everything's fine uh, has given us an awful some moment, and uh, they are gender fluid. And they write going to see going in to see the nurse who is helping me get referred into treatment for my anorexia, breaking down into a sobbing fit about my recent struggles with a binge restrict cycle for forty five minutes over our assigned fifteen minute session, and then awkwardly finishing with oh by the way I think I'm having an allergic reaction. Thanks to my pre-appointment binge, right as the medical practice was closing. One of the nurses had to stay overtime on the pavement curb to keep an eye on me as a taxi came to take me to the hospital. Ironically, not for being a, quote, crazy skinny bitch, but for getting to check for nut warnings while hysterically buying binge food. How easy it was for me to get immediate treatment for my obvious swellings and rashes was really just salt in the wound when it continued to take me over four months for anyone to take my, quote, invisible eating disorder seriously. What a great, great example of the battle for mental health to be to be recognized. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Ms. Precariat writes, um, this is actually just a uh, comment about the podcast. She writes, uh, it's the only podcast I respect, look forward to, and constantly recommend to others. It gets me through long-haul flights, uh, through feeling alone in my struggles, and many other things. But there are times during which Paul, who is generally an awesome interviewer, just gets too much about himself. Or when someone is speaking, he makes it about him, his past, etc. I want him to be a bit more aware that there are some traumas that need to be heard, not compared to, etc. And just let us, the audience, hear and experience this guest, please. And try to include some topics not yet covered uh, that are really important. Duly noted. And thank you for the nice comments before the criticism. Because um, that, that makes it me able to take it in and uh, and digest it instead of going, well, this is just a fucking angry, bitter person. That and the fact that 900 other people have written the same thing. Uh, I'd like to think, though, as the podcast has gone on, I've gotten a little better with that, but maybe not. Um, Mess in a Dress writes about her codependency, too flawed myself to be loved by anyone without a serious fault. Snapshot from her life, feeling relieved that my boyfriend has relapsed and is back in rehab so that he will need me in the way that I crave and give me the false hope that I matter more to him than the drug. Um, I really hope that you um, go to a uh, some type of support group for the loved ones of uh, an addict. Any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love to hear from those who struggle as a family member or significant other of an addict. Um and I would recommend uh, three episodes to start with. Uh, Ashley Birch, uh, who actually lost 
um, her boyfriend uh, to a drug overdose. So we touch on that in, in her interview. Uh, Carrie Kenny Silver is a great interview about uh, codependence. She was, uh, I believe, engaged uh, to a um, alcoholic uh, or drug addict. And Dave Anthony is a great uh, interview. Uh, his dad uh, is a, is a uh, alcoholic, untreated alcoholic. Uh, and there's, I'm sure, lots of other ones, but those are the three that, that sprang to mind. Uh, Duder shares an awful moment. My neighbor ordered some concrete to pour his new driveway and offered me the leftovers to pour a floor in my backyard shed. So, there we are, watching the dump truck concrete uh, out when I forgot something in my house and needed to run in quick. Once I got into the house, my ADHD kicked in and I completely forgot what I was doing. So I sat down and figured I'd rub one out. In the middle of masturbating, there was a sharp knock on my window, and my neighbor was there staring at me, disappointed, when I suddenly realized that I was supposed to be outside. The truck had already left before I could pour my shed floor. I'm tempted to make a joke about you pouring something else, but I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna leave that to you guys to construct in your your own head. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Peony, and uh, she's straight in her 20s, raised in... <laughs> you guys never cease to amaze me. What kind of an environment were you raised in? Sable and Stable and safe, but I was terrified of my dad. Just let that sink in for a second. The lengths we will go to convince ourselves that things aren't as bad as they really were. Um, and then we convince our thing, ourselves that things are worse than they actually are in the present moment. <laughs> Come on, brain, get it right. She's never been sexually abused, never been physically abused. Um, darkest thoughts, I am inadequate. My dad doesn't love me as much as he loves my brother. There's something intris intrinsically unappealing and unattractive about me. I am boring and a nuisance. When I speak to people, I'm wasting their time, so I should speak as quickly as possible to get my message out and let them get on with their lives. Darkest secrets. I have depression and bulimia. I have done such dark, dirty, terrible things that I could never tell anyone, not even my psychiatrist who specializes in eating disorders because I don't want her to look down on me. I have eaten out of the bin many times. I have thrown up in so many inappropriate places, including family events, restaurants, and while babysitting small children. I have thrown up in plastic bags and rooms without running water and hidden it until the time I can dispose of it. Throwing up is so cathartic, like purging all the anxiety in some kind of physical form. I went through a short six-month alcoholic phase where I would drink vodka as a way to displace food. No one knows this. I'm so lucky I never got addicted to alcohol. I don't do this anymore. During this phase, I drove drunk twice. This is the worst thing I have ever done, and I feel so bad about that. I drove drunk to a McDonald's drive through because my plan to displace food with vodka failed. I am envious of you for having an Adderall prescription. Uh, well, if you would have to get the rest of the bullshit that comes with me. Uh, so I don't think you would want to be envious of, of that. But um, 
I'm, I'm going to read more of your survey before I make any comments. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Rape fantasies. I, I never share it because it makes me feel like a liar. I am a feminist. It makes me feel dirty, and I prefer that it remains only a fantasy. Uh, to which I would say it's one of the most common fantasies that women have. It does not mean that you want it in reality, and it does not negate the fact that you are a feminist because our sexual fantasies have nothing to do with our morality. They're put there. They're like freckles. Embrace it. Let go of the shame and have an orgasm. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to say all that I have said in this survey, and then I'd like to say your turn because I think hope. We all have these hidden, dirty little stories that we hide for the sake of being normal. I'm going to assume you're a new listener because um, we have read so many things that are, that that your uh, quote-unquote secrets are so tame in comparison to, and I've read one version or another of all the things that, that you've listed. So you are so not alone in these things that you're struggling with. And I really, really hope that you open up to your psychiatrist about it because you're, I, I guarantee you your psychiatrist wants to know this. Your psychiatrist did not go to medical school uh, to to have a patient tell them half the information. They you know, hopefully have a passion for what it is that they're doing. And by you being vulnerable, you can allow that person to be the best psychiatrist they can be. But more importantly, you can get the help for yourself that you need because you none of this is a reflection of your morality. This is about wounds and, and coping mechanisms that aren't, aren't working anymore. And just sending you uh, some love and a hug. Um, I think the only thing you should be ashamed of is McDonald's, honestly. I gotta admit, like when I'm when I'm pressed for time uh, in an airport, I, I I go get a Big Mac. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by happy to be quote normal, and she writes after having an eating disorder that had been untreated, I signed up for a personal trainer at the gym. I had gained fifty pounds since my lowest weight and am now at a healthy weight. One of the first questions the trainer asked me was what my goal weight was. I took a second to smile, then said, I don't care about numbers. I just want to be a healthy me. I have never felt more proud of myself. Sending you a big digital high five. That's so awesome. That must have felt amazing. Uh, Changeling, who is agender, writes about their PTSD, like being an involuntary time traveler. I never know when, when the time machine's going to start up or where it'll take me, just that it will be somewhere awful. About having autism, I'm surrounded by aliens with unreadable faces and inscrutable motives. I don't want to hurt any of them, but I can't work out what they're thinking or feeling unless they tell me. Thank you that for, for, for sharing that. That, um, it has to be really frustrating. And this is a happy moment from Tired of This Shit. I like that contrast. <laughs> um, uh, tired of This Shit, they're gender fluid and they write, uh, I'm sitting in my office listening to your podcast and daydreaming about this weekend. This weekend, I am moving out of town into an apartment with my soon-to-be fiancé. After 19 years of living with my mother... This feels like a breath of fresh air, and I'm not even there yet. 
I keep imagining us decorating our small and shitty apartment and just feeling like a human for once. Other than gaining freedom, I'm feeling greatly accomplished for saving up enough money for the apartment at a part-time minimum wage job. This is the first time that I wish to be alive. It's so awesome. It is so awesome. And doing it while make, while working a minimum wage job, man, that I, I am in awe of, uh, of people that are able to support themselves um, doing that. Uh, that's Herbert just drove by on his motorcycle. He refuses to be around the uh, the, the podcast lately because he feels like his uh, his butthole is being objectified. So he's just circling in his motorcycle to protest. Um, and Ivy is telling us that we should lock the door, that he'll find a place to live. Uh, Harper. Uh, who is non-binary, writes about their alcoholism and drug addiction. Like I'm being punched in the face and the only way I'll feel better is being kicked in the stomach. That is a good one. Um, about experiencing incest. Like no one can ever love me because my own mother abused me. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, and comments to make the podcast better. Sometimes I cringe when the topic of borderline personality disorder comes up on the show. While I really appreciate the lengths that you go to demystify the disorder and show sympathy and empathy to people with BPD, which sadly rarely happens, sometimes you and your guests tend to play into these stereotypes. For example, on one episode, a guest was talking about an abusive mother and you put forth the idea that she probably had BPD because of a few isolated incidents the guest described. I think in moments like that, it's important to take a step back and ask yourself if you're playing into negative stereotypes of people with BPD and ask why you would make that suggestion when you are, as you always say, not a therapist nor a person that has BPD. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. I appreciate that. Um, and, and she also wrote, um, uh, there was some more, but I, I'm just uh, fast-forwarding to the end. I don't want you, you to see this as an attack, but more of a loving criticism. I love the podcast. And, uh, and then she goes on to say some more nice things about it. And um, thank you. You know, d- done with love. And my ears are uh, ears are open when... when you guys write it like that and, and um, as much as I hate to to have you know quote unquote mistakes it really does make for a better podcast when you guys tell me the truth um, Julia um, filled out a shame and secret survey she is straight in her 20s raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, and this is a really common one. Um, she writes, oh, I don't know. It's one of those repressed memory situations. My therapist says I have really obvious signs of sexual trauma, and it's been over a year since we pieced that together, but I still can't figure it out. I know for the first six months of my relationship, I broke down in emotional pain every time my boyfriend and I tried to have sex and would just weep uncontrollably for hours. Then we worked it out and had a pretty normal sex life for about a year, and now for the last year and a half, we can do anything sexual, maybe once or twice a month, and most of the time, I just do it to make him happy and fill his needs. It's like a void for me. 
It makes me feel so broken and confused and jealous that there is this happy, uh, that this magical thing called sex that people have that I just can't enjoy. What's weird is that I told my sister, and she told me that she has always felt like she's repressing sexual trauma too, but never told anyone about it. When I tried asking our mom, though, she wrote it off and said no one in our lives would do that and that it was ridiculous. That is so sad that that is how your mother reacted, that she didn't even seem interested in exploring the possibility of that. And... uh you know, I don't want to jump to any kind of conclusions, um, but that is, um, I don't know, that's just, I'm so, I'm so sorry that that is, you know, that, that you're experiencing the same symptoms that a survivor has, and you have the added hurdle of not knowing what happened. And now the added hurdle that a parent is completely writing you off and not showing you any empathy. But thank God you have your sister. Um, Darkest thoughts. Today I was driving around thinking, man, I hope someone hits me. Not that I want to die. I just want some kind of non-permanent physical ailment that will get people to see me as broken and sick and let me stop fighting for a few weeks and let me lie in bed while they bring me food and don't make me talk about my feelings. Sometimes the idea of my parents slash loved ones dying panics me so much I think about killing myself just so I don't have to go through losing them. Then the guilt of knowing I'd be putting them through the same pain keeps me here. Sometimes I like my mental illness, a very depressive bipolar too, because it gives me an excuse to not live up to my potential. Thank you for that. And that is a thing that I read a lot in these surveys is people want, they just want a break. You know, they just want to be able to collapse and to be themselves and not have to have to put some mask on. And, um, you're not alone in that. You are not alone in that at all. And, you know, from what you described of your mom, who would want to talk about their feelings? You know, it sounds like your your house was a really unsafe place to be human. Uh, darkest secrets, okay? This one is really bad. If you use my survey for an episode, which is fine, please really consider before reading this one because it's gross and I've never told anyone. But I'm going to figure out this trauma stuff. I probably have to, if I'm going to figure out this trauma stuff, I probably have to start owning this one and anonymous to you who I don't even know how much you read all the surveys seems like a good place to start. And by the way, this thing that she shares is so common. Probably one of the top three things that I've read in these surveys. And the only reason I don't read these more is because it's so common and I like to, to try to find things that that other people um, haven't heard voiced before. Anyway, continuing. When I was in late elementary school, I remember I was changing in my room after a shower and didn't get dressed right away. I'm sure just because of the scent of it, my dog uh, was sniffing around my vagina and licked it. 
I didn't stop her and definitely got off. Though I was too young to know what that meant, I have memories of actively making that happen a few more times. I feel so sick thinking about it. I can't bring myself to talk about it in therapy or anywhere else. I don't view dogs as sexual or anything creepy like that. I was maybe eight or nine at the time, and it didn't make sense. Um, that is so common. It is so common. And please let go of any shame or guilt and even if you did get sexual feelings looking at dogs or animals, that's okay too. You know, all that matters is, uh, you know, what, how you feel about yourself and are, how you're expressing your emotions. And today, are you trying to find a healthy way to express your emotions and find safe play, people to share them with? Um, and then I'm not going to read the rest of the her shame about stuff. It's, you know, sexual, really innocuous sexual stuff as a kid and her mom uh, shaming her for it. And um, anyway, uh, I guarantee your therapist has heard that before. If your therapist has been around uh, for more than a year, Um Sexual fantasies. Uh, oh man, my sexual fantasies are all so lame. It's usually just a faceless man with a nice body being a little rough but not very and going down on me while getting himself off. Intercourse doesn't do it for me. I'm really realizing I had a lot of stuff about going down. So maybe that's a clue? Question mark. Uh, certainly wouldn't hurt to, you know, talk about it with your therapist and thank God you're in therapy. So you can hopefully start hearing how hard you are on yourself said the pot to the kettle. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to figure out a way to tell my parents, who are wonderful people and for the most part excellent parents, why the shit they did wrong was so harmful. Why telling me it was okay to have depression and that not hanging out with people was fine, but that having trouble getting out of bed or struggling in school was just unacceptable and never explain or even understanding that it was related to the diagnosis. Also, if your kid tells you that they've been sexually assaulted, believe them, hands down. I want to say to everyone with mental illness that it's not your fault and you are doing your best and there are options for you, but it's hard to reach them. Hence, going to school for it. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you for that survey. And I hope you get to uh, hear this read. This is an email, a really touching email that I got from uh, a guy who calls himself Lawrence. And um, he writes, Baby, it will be nice to let you know that someone out here cares to know more about you. And what I care about is, and then it's all in caps, you are beautiful. Um, I'm so touched by that. But I'm a little concerned because he writes, baby, it will be nice to let you know, which if I got this means that someone is delivering his mail without him knowing it. And that is creepy. Um, I'm concerned about Lawrence. I'm just going to continue reading. Uh, I wish I can know more about you. Um my personality traits are simple. I'm very sincere and honest when it comes to sharing feelings and emotions with that special person, down-to-earth honest about the things I say and do. I'm very easy to get along with. 
fun to be with, and I'm very adaptive and communicative when it comes to conversant conversation. Um, Let me just finish. Please have a sweet time, as I will like to hear from you. I wait your response with huge impatience. I might have read this one already on the show, but um, I'm so deeply touched um, and concerned that, you know, impatience comes in all sizes, but when an impatience becomes huge, it's really good idea to go to the doctor because it it could be something uh, more serious. Um, And as far as the conversant conversation, you know, I'm going to be honest, I've had casually casual friendships, you know, the kind where you have like uh, afternoony lunches and maybe some liquidy drinks. Um, but I've never really had a very talkative talk, and I'm a little intrigued. So I'm going to wish to know more about you in the future, uh, Lawrence Springer. Oh, I wonder if this is the one that I did read and it was a guy's name that's a listener, and he emailed me. Well, if I did, then you just uh, email me again and remind me how fucking uh, old and senile I am. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Herbert's butthole and my cat's butthole would love each other. Let's jump into conclusions. You are not you are not a butthole matchmaker, um, but I bet somewhere there is a junior college where you can learn to be one. About her depression, it's taken you 48 hours to get out of bed, but at least your eyes aren't puffy anymore. Her anxiety, swimming through sand. Her anorexia, how much longer will it be until my mom asks me if I'm okay? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this one, is please don't wait for your mom to ask. It would be great if your mom asked, but please open up to her or somebody else. You deserve to be heard. And you're clearly feeling overwhelmed by your emotions. And you deserve to be heard and seen and helped and loved and hugged and consoled. And and um, anyway, any comments to make the podcast better? Do Q&As with Herbert's Butthole moderated by Ivy. Um, I'm going to be honest. Ivy is terrible on camera. And um, she's not very bright. I don't think she would be a good moderator, and she would somehow, like me, turn everything around and make it all about her. This is a happy moment filled out by Ray, who is a gender. And Ray writes, uh, On Sunday, my high school football team was coming home from an away game when the bus driver had a heart attack and the bus crashed. My coaches and peers suffered injuries ranging from broken noses to fractured skull. Skulls. The bus driver lost her life. Uh, Not a very happy moment so far. Bear with me. Um, When I came to school on Monday, the grief... This probably could be an awful moment. Shut up, Paul. Move on. This is just how I like it. You're in my sweet spot. When I came to school on Monday, the grief was palpable. Students and teachers alike were crying, breaking down in class. Tests were postponed, and therapy dogs and grief counselors were constantly milling around. The crash was all anyone could talk about. News vans showed up at the school. Flowers were placed at the front doors. We all signed a card for the people in the hospital. It felt so surreal. Even with all the commotion, 
I heard the same speech parroted back to me a dozen times. Send your positive thoughts to the victims and their families and try to regain normalcy in your academic routine. It was so frustrating to be expected to work as if nothing had happened, to do calculus as your teacher runs out of the room sobbing, to read a textbook while trying not to glance at the empty desks around you. By the end of the day, I was so tired of holding myself together, I was ready to tune out another obligatory carry-on speech when my choir teacher said something that caught my attention. She said, whatever you're feeling, it's valid. Whether you knew the players or not, whether you knew the coaches or not, it doesn't matter. There are no stupid feelings. If you want to cry, do it. If you want to take a break, take it. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Even if you're okay now, it might hit you later. But we're a family, and we experience the fallout together. All the tears I hadn't fully shed for the tragedy sprang to my eyes, and I let them fall. I let myself feel loved and scared and supported and confused all at the same time. And even though high school can be a terrible place, I let myself feel like I was part of a family. I let myself be hugged and comforted and even joked with. As long as I can hold on to that, I know I will make it through this period of grieving, and I know I can make it through life. And uh, and Ray is 15 years old. And here's something I want to read, too. Uh, Ray writes, um, uh, as I mentioned, a- uh, Ray is agender, and, and Ray writes, Thanks for getting better about pronouns, Paul. I noticed a huge difference since the early episodes, and it gives me comfort and validation and hope that others can learn as well. That means a lot to me, and thank you for saying that. Um, this one is kind of in its own category. It's It was filled out as a struggle in a sentence, but it's kind of somewhere between a happy moment and an awfulsome moment. Um, it's filled out by Imone, uh, who I know we've read uh, some of her surveys before, and she writes a uh, snapshot from her life. She writes, putting my four-year-old son's laundry away, and he takes all of his dresses and gives them to me, telling me to donate them to someone else because he doesn't want to wear them anymore. He's tired of being made fun of for wearing dresses. My heart breaks because I haven't protected him from everything. Devastated because now he cares what others think about what he wears and he never did before. Wondering what to do so he feels secure and loved. Taking the dresses back out of the donation bin and hanging them back up in his closet just in case he changes his mind, realizing how lucky I am to end up with my son. And I think everybody who just heard that is realizing and how lucky he is to have such a beautiful, compassionate mom. Everything's Fine writes about um, their depression. Um, Like every space inside my body is clogged up with gray, so there's no room for real happiness. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. About their anorexia. Like I'd have to eat all the food in the country to stand a chance of feeling satisfied, so instead I should eat nothing because at least then I choose and controlled my suffering. Wow, that is good. Um, snapshot from their life, being six months, quote, recovered and out of the hospital, but still finding myself Googling through tears the cal- the calories in the cinnamon. Wow, that is such an image. That is such a heartbreaking image. And, uh, and they're a teenager. Oh, sending you some love. Sending you some love. 
Robin Robe writes about his PTSD. It's like sitting in a burning house screaming for help and everyone keeps screaming back, don't worry, time heals all wounds. <laughs> Any comments that make the podcast better? More themed hats. I can't disagree with that. And if this were a video podcast, you would know that right now I'm wearing a very tall hat made entirely of fruit uh, and fresh fruit, not fake fruit. Um, each of my hats has a shelf life of about 48 hours. You don't ever want to wear a hat that has a banana brim. That's going bad. Uh, and speaking of uh, uh, fruit, uh, this is from Drunk on Peach Melba, and she writes, uh, an awfulsome moment. After a triggering incident, I was in a major state of anxiety. I made it to my cubicle on adrenaline, I guess, but once I sat down, the thought of ever leaving felt so incredibly dangerous I couldn't leave to grab my lunch or go to the bathroom. I texted my friend that I was having issues, and she, she suggested that I, quote, treat myself once I got home. I decided I would get cake. I focused hard on the cake during my almost two-hour commute home. I was still terrified, but made it to the grocery store. Looking at anyone, let alone talking to them, made me want to throw up, so I went to the self-checkout. As I was getting ready to pay, an older male employee came up to me and asked if I was having a party. I looked him straight in the face and told him, matter-of-factly, I wasn't having a party. I was molested as a kid, and this cake is the only thing that kept me from throwing myself on the tracks today. The look on his face as he backed away, sputtering, gave me such a sick joy, I almost felt sorry for him. That's Hall of Fame. That is fucking Hall of Fame awfulsome. Thank you for that. Christmas just came early. Um, this is an awfulsome moment um, filled out by Marsha Brady. Marsha, I had quite the crush on you. When I was 25, I told my mom that when I was six, an older male sibling uh, was 13, who was 13, uh, he repeated, uh, molested, he repeated, repeatedly molested me, and there's a lot of typos in this, and then would go through a ritual of saying he was hypnotizing me to swear I would never tell. I think it was this ritual of, of scaring me into silence and my subsequent years of total amnesia or repression about what happened. My family, if you can call it that, overall was bizarrely dysfunctional in a multitude of ways, and the sexual abuse itself wasn't the worst part, the worst thing that happened to me by any means. But at that point, it was blocking me from being able to form relationships. A therapist and support group I was in encouraged me to, quote, give voice to my experience. So I called my mom to say I had something I wanted to tell her, and her response after I told her, uh, after I told her, uh, that it always happened in the basement with her upstairs in the room above, and I could hear her buzzing around doing things that really didn't matter to anyone but herself. And she said, you are a liar and you are crazy. I said, I am not lying and I am definitely not crazy. Going forward from that day, I did not call her mom again. I would avoid calling her by any name, but if I had to, used her first name and felt a kind of relief. I felt like she was not a mom to me, but she was there, and it made sense to me to just say her name. I did feel hurt by her predictably heartless response, turning it back on me, but it also liberated me to say this out loud and to see her in her response. 
Over time, I reconciled with my brother, who along with my sister also suffered enormously in my feloniously fucked up family. There's a good uh, screen name. The three of us have uh, tried in a kind of three-legged dog kind of way to support each other as adults by being witnesses or ears or eyes who can believe that horrible things happened and scarred us all. All of us are okay enough now, but like weird wounded soldiers in a war, no one saw once the doors, uh, no one saw once the doors uh, to the house were closed and the crazy shit exploded. It's empty and comforting to know that what connects us is having endured so many fucked up things and felt and feel so dead and alive at the same time. Wow, that is really, uh, really deep and um, inspiring. I mean, you just painted such an amazing picture of just calmly calling your mom by her first name and not not escalating. That's that's fucking badass, man. And then finally, um, there's no way I cannot end on this one. And it's very short. And after I read it, you will know why. It's filled out by Robin Robe. It's an awfulsome moment. And it reads, Cleaning out the van we lived in while traveling uh, across Canada together and finding one of your used tampons and crying unconsolably while holding it by the string. How do I not end the podcast on that? I kind of want to go end it now by just saying, Later, motherfuckers. But that feels a little, uh, that feels like a little over the top. So I will say, um, I don't know what I'm going to say. I hope you heard something that helped you. I know for sure when I'm going through shit, uh, and I'm going through some shit right now, um, it really helps to, to have this podcast and to... Just to have this feeling of, of community. That's really awesome. That's really, really awesome. And um, I'm, I just feel really, uh, really grateful. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, roll the dice. It's never as bad the asking for help as your mind makes it out to be. And I can tell you this, once you start asking for help, you will find friends that you will have for life who get you, who you get, who you feel safe around. You can laugh at really fucked up things about your life with them and it'll feel cathartic. But if you never ask for help, those things, you'll never get to experience those. So tell your brain to fuck off. Say, brain, thank you for sharing, but I'm going to pick up the phone right now because you and I need to talk to somebody. And, uh, yeah, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.